We here at Libations for Everyone are proud to be sponsored by Perfectly Dosed. Perfectly Dosed is all about accessibility of access, providing creators, BIPOC founders, and entrepreneurs from all walks of life with premium, water-soluble, hemp-derived cannabinoid emulsions at affordable prices for them to bring their idea for consumable products to life. From beverages to edibles, Perfectly Dosed is the perfect ingredient partner for you. Trusted by industry-leading companies such as Fair State Brewing, Blackstack Brewing, Thesis, Amy's Cupcakes, Plift, and Dash Fire Spirits and Bitters, among many others, to infuse their best-in-class products. You can trust Perfectly Dosed to keep your products, well, perfectly dosed, whatever it may be. It's right there in the name. But now, let's start the show. It's uh, driving here today, speaking of being in the classic confines of Club Caraway. Uh, on the way here, pretty much from any direction, you have to drive through uh, sort of the heart and soul of, of the Pride celebration here in, in Minneapolis this weekend. And it's so awesome. Like, I love, I forget how much I just adore looking at the, the people and the crowds. And everybody is just, like, happy and hugging. I saw... Uh, a person in a very, very beautiful ball gown walking hand in hand down the street with a dude okay. with a, a mohawk and a spiked leather vest and a t-shirt that said punk is for everybody in parentheses except the fucking rich. And I was like, yep, I love you guys. <laughs> okay. I love this couple. I love the message. I love everything about it. Sounds but, like you saw the mayor. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. As far as I understand it, that's the mayor of Minneapolis, right? <laughs> no, because he wasn't doing a choreographed dance. Oh, well, that's, then. Oh, <laughs> that's how you know. Doing a TikTok I got a, we, I've been rolling around with John the last few days, and it's like we're constantly in the car, out, boom, into a liquor store. And we got out in one kind of a shopping mall, and I just glanced, and I saw a poster in a window that said, Stop Pride. .org. And I was like, wow. ballsy. Wow. And then I got out, what? and what it actually said was, stppride.org, St. Paul <laughs> Pride. But for a minute there, I'm like, look, I don't agree with the sentiment to stop Pride, but it takes some balls to put the poster up. <laughs> wow. Got to respect no, that. Like, oh, blindly, you missed yeah. the, one character there. Okay. So Throw it. brick here. It was a weird poster to, to put up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. And then for those of you that aren't uh, from this area, uh, we also have a back-to-back -back Taylor Swift concert happening in downtown and a uh colonoscopy technology convention going on so all of the things are happening right now and i just want to go sit at a bar somewhere in downtown minneapolis tonight and listen like i just want to hear i want to hear those three groups overlapping because two of them overlap real well the third one i'm just interested in i want to i want to know how that's well, going. the first concert was last night wasn't it, it was correct night. so i was in mara the beautiful bar yeah. in the Four Seasons here yes. in Minneapolis. And I knew one of the bartenders, and I got chatting to all of them. And they then started talking about the Taylor Swift concert in the manner of, like, you know, completely burned out thousand yard stare soldiers <laughs> about to go over the top. It's like, all right, guys, it's happening tomorrow. We can only control what we prepare. They're gonna, they're gonna come. They're coming, guys. We just—it's like the King Leonidas speech from the three hundred. Yeah, like, we are Mara. <laughs> it was formation. Yeah, I was, I was out and about in the market. Um, I, I, I uh, 
am the co-owner and sales director for a THC beverage company. Gotcha. And so I was out bouncing around hitting accounts yesterday. And it was, uh, it was amazing at the hour that people were already out. Like yeah. a lot of mom and daughter combos sure. were already at bars and restaurants at 11 a.m. I was very kind of surprised about that because that's a, that's a marathon of a night. And that Taylor Swift show, if it's anything like the last tour, which I went to proudly, uh, that's like a two-hour show. And there's openers and there's time for costume changes and stuff. So that's a, it's a the long set day. set is two hours, you mean? Her, uh, set, her set was like two her hours, set. yeah. Okay, sure. And, uh, or, yeah, I mean, for $5,500 or whatever, at least you can get two hours. Bargain. That's crazy. I was, and for the first time, I know you know the guys, Nick Kosovich and Jeff, mm. Tommy Begnaud's place. Mr. Paul's Supper Club yesterday. We did a little pre training for the staff. So we're there on the dot of like Former five guests. when it opens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had never been there. Uh, when we launched Old Dutch Geneva here in Minneapolis a couple of years ago, we did a little get together in Hodges Bend Bar. Oh, yeah. RIP. And I knew Nick, but I didn't know Tommy. And they were telling me about all their plans and the Supper Club. And I'm like, oh, awesome, you guys. And I go in there and it's huge. It's so. <laughs> Gorgeous, but the Great. first table that came in, table number one, it like I gave my buddy John zero odds. I'm like, these are Taylor Swift fans. It was four uh, attractive 25 year old women. One of them was wearing a rainbow colored dress. Oh yeah, and you know they were all drinking mojitos. And as we were leaving, we had a couple of cocktails. I walked past the table and I heard one of them say to the rest of the group, "So I was manifesting," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's a certainty. <laughs> that's it, 100 <laughs> percent." No money to be won betting against this. Do you think they're like, are they named like the Rice Krispie cartoon characters like Snap, Crackle, and Pop is one live, one laugh, and one love? Yeah, like a pillow <laughs> yeah. from Bed Bath. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, man, that's, I didn't think that the, the, the Swifties would radiate that far out. I mean, that's, a, that's not a short distance away from the stadium, but it is an incredible restaurant, so I would understand wanting to go somewhere nice, and everything was so booked out. You know, everybody talked about the price of the tickets, but between Pride, Taylor Swift, and colonoscopies, uh, hotels were going for fifteen hundred a night downtown. Wow, that's yeah, it's the the surge rate that hotels get away with is staggering. So they're staying there, yeah, staying by Mr. Paul probably. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't you? If you think about it, it's probably what a twenty dollar Uber ride. The Uber's cheaper, and even if it's a hundred bucks afterwards, like that's worth it. Right, agreed. Oh man! Uh, so you're? Are you, do you get to go home after this? Are you headed back to New York? I City? do. I'm back to New York for a very brief period of time. I'm actually missing my kids' graduation party, which is like a double edge, right? A load of eighteen-year-old kids trying to hide themselves getting high on white claw, <laughs> and us sort of like pretending not to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but her actual graduation is on Monday, so that's cool. And then Tuesday evening, we are off to uh, tropical. Actually, it's cooler than here Lisbon oh I'm so which jealous is, which is kind of cool we did that last year as well and I love it and love while it. I'm there I can nip all around Europe and do bits and pieces of work and my wife can pretend to live in Portugal so and you can cool. sneak <laughs> delicious little nips of sherry every single turn you make not so little yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was, we're little li- littles and heavy quotes right here yeah. scare quotes around that I uh I am so jealous of that that sounds absolutely wonderful and I think I'd be green with envy if it wasn't for a trip that we also have coming up mm-hmm. but basically get me anywhere where the water keeps it temperate when it's you know when we get eight days in a row of 90 plus degrees and and at least a decent amount of humidity I'll just take ocean air it may be thick but it keeps it cool mm-hmm. and I just want that all day coming absolutely um we thank you for yeah fitting us into your manifest hey, and joining us delighted guys no, we've timed this so that i can get 
just hammered enough to have fun, but not so hammered they put me on the plane in handcuffs. There you go. They're going straight from here to the airport. Right. On the other hand, it's United, and I'm flying into Newark, so I'm fairly sure <laughs> You're just nobody has in. flown into New Jersey sober in <laughs> decades. I'm not sure you're allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, can we get you another drink? No, no like, we need to get you Yeah, it's mandated. Drink. We're about to put down Cokes. Like, you know you're going to New Jersey, right? <laughs> Instead of handing you the uh, the declaration form, they hand you a little slip. You just check off the bottles that you require to be drunk when you land. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, once you once you see the shimmer of the heat reflecting off all the asphalt that covers all of New Jersey, yeah. it is a daunting proposition. So a little bit of a buzz just to give everything else a little shimmer. <laughs> I'm into that. That's it. Uh, well, we should uh, first of all, before we even get to the amazing bottles that you brought, we should have you introduce yourself to everybody, uh, all of our listeners out there, and kind of let them know how they might have crossed paths with you. That's it. Well, obviously, uh, many of your listeners know who I am. Now, my name's uh, Philip Duff. I'm from Ireland. I left a long time ago. I became a bartender at the age of 15, and I saw the movie Cocktail more as career guidance, which was great because I didn't get any at school. <laughs> and I subsequently bartended in my native Dublin, in London, uh, illegally in New York, but that's past the statute of limitations. I ran, I ran a bar on the beach in the Cayman Islands. Like I really took that movie to heart. Then I was briefly back in London and I moved to Holland for 17 years where I bartended, opened my own bar, first ever speakeasy in Holland, first ever to get in the world's 50 best bars, got up to like number 15 at one stage, we were Amazing. surprised as anyone else. And then I met an American lady, she lived in New York, I lived in Amsterdam, so we compromised and I moved to New York. <laughs> That's just how compromise goes with ladies from Staten Island. Um, along the way, I became a full-time consultant because uh, I was about to burn out bartending and I didn't want to do that. And now I create brands for customers. I reposition brands. I do spirits education. I own my own amazing uh, Real Dutch Geneva brand, Old Dutch Geneva, which is why I'm here Truly. in the great Twin Cities selling it with my amazing distributors, Libation Project, who hooked me up with you, Ben, we and are. you, Charles. So, and also, I had a bit of time to kill before the United flight tonight, so this is it. Yeah, we're helping you get a rolling start here. Yeah. That's it. And even as it may Otherwise, be... Otherwise, I'd be in Mortimer's. You know? <laughs> yeah. It could be expensive in Soul Points, but it's way cheaper than drinking at the airport, hanging out in the basement and, and having fun here at, so at Club Caraway. So true. Yeah, this is exciting because the lineup that you've brought today uh, will enable you to kind of bring our listeners into a conversation you've had in recent days at places like Meteor regarding the history of gin, Geneva, and rye and how they connect beginning to end. And we're sort of going, so we're going from modern all the way back to the rye. Is that how you've positioned this? Uh, yeah, I mean, rye is the newest one to emerge on the scene. Like gin, as we know it, uh, wasn't really finalized in England till the early 1800s. And Geneva has been a taxed recreational drink since 1497. So we're taking it back to the old school. Yes. Yeah. But so what we have in our glasses right now, would you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I didn't pour it. Did you? Is this? I poured it, yes. It's is it from the, the flask? Uh, it was in the flask. Yeah. Oh, outstanding. Well, we are starting at the top. So uh, whenever I go to a new state in America, or a new country, in fact, Sure. I dig into the old newspaper archives for the first printed uh, incidents of Geneva, or as it's sometimes called, Geneva, or Hollandgin, or Dutch gin, or Schiedams. Mm -hmm. Now, newspapers typically only go back to about the 1700s, by which stage Geneva was 200 years old, but fine. And my favourite 
add with the oldest printed mention in Minnesota is from about 1855. But my favourite that I've been showing at these little talks I give in Meteor and at the Libation Office is from 1866, 24 March 1866, in the Minnesota Staatszeitung, the German language newspaper of this place. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I couldn't have found a better ad. It says, uh, you know, uh, Terkaufen, for sale, um, Geneva, Weiner, and Reiner Rye whiskies. Amazing. Yeah, so Geneva wine and excellent rye whiskies, which is pretty much my seminar yeah. with yeah. a bit of gin in, uh, in the beginning. So the important thing about Geneva is it's a delicious, it's the precursor to whiskey, right? Um, before whiskey really became whiskey, it was all effectively Geneva. Gene Irish whiskey, it was the first ever whiskey on from Ireland, but the first recipes for it from the 1600s were all... Uh, unaged grain distillate, and up to four pounds per gallon of botanicals. Holy shit. Yeah, fennel, licorice, or yeah. juniper. Juniper is really cheap, and it grows uh, or grew all across Ireland, Scotland, Holland, England, etc., etc. So what happened was whiskey changed, and Geneva, good Geneva, never did. So when you drink good stuff, and we're going to drink it in a moment, it's like going to the zoo, and instead of a picture of a dinosaur, they've got a live T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> this is the stuff yeah. that, you know, this is, you know, Jurassic Island or whatever, Isla Muerta, mm -hmm. whatever it was from, the, uh, from those movies. And I became fascinated with it living in Holland. And what it is, if you want to make this, which is Old Duff Geneva, 100% malt wine Geneva, there's only 300% malt wine Genevas with the seal of Schiedam left. It's really easy. It's really easy. You know, join me on the flight to New York tonight. We'll get a connecting flight <laughs> into it to Amsterdam. We'll nip down to Schiedam, our south, just outside Rotterdam. And then we have to find a family of distillers that have been making Geneva in an unbroken eight-generation line since 77. Wow. Uh, it's, it's easier than you think because I actually know where they live. It's the Janssen family. And uh, if they answer the phone, you going to say something, Ben? Uh, no, I was just going to say <laughs> hello. Yeah. Hello. Just saying hi yeah. to them. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I can say that because I'm tall. That's so. it, yeah. Well, or in Holland, you would just be Ben. Average. That's yeah. it, yeah. Again, I'm average. Yeah, I'm like a smurf. I'm 5'10 and I'm a smurf in Holland. Yeah. Like, Jesus. Right. But yeah, and uh, if you talk them into it, to make 100% malt wine Geneva like mine, uh, the first thing you do, we made some recently, you have to look in the newspaper for the weather report because the grain is milled on the tallest and oldest operating windmill in the world, which is from 1785. That's amazing. Right? And it's milled wow. with rocks, right? And it's two parts of rye and one of barley. So if you're nerdy or you've got a nerdy relative listening along, this is the time to grab them into the conversation. This is the original Geneva recipe. Two rye, one barley. And hundreds of years later, this became the original rye whiskey recipe in America. But anyway, you mill it, uh, you bring it in, you ferment it. It takes five days at a low temperature, which is an expensive pain in the arse because rye is a pain in the arse. However, if you do it right, you get something beautiful. Then you distill it in a pot still three times, and you take a little portion of that distillate, and you redistill it with a tiny bit of juniper. You take another little portion, and you redistill it with another ancient pain in the arse ingredient, hops. Oh, yeah. Right, and you combine those three distillates, and if you bottle it in the right distillery, and you bottle it between uh, eighty-six and uh, ninety-six proof, doing the math in my head, uh, this is bottled at ninety. You qualify as hundred percent malt wine Geneva 
with the Sealiski Dam, and this is what conquered Minnesota in the 1700s and 1800s. This is what Rip Van Winkle drank so much of he fell asleep for 20 years. This is what the eighth president of America, Martin Van Buren, drank so much of they nicked him, nicknamed him Old Blue Nose. <laughs> John Quincy Adams, fluent Dutch speaker and another president, drank this. Uh, there's so much Geneva history. Uh, I can make you drink from the fire hose. This was all the gin. What, whenever there was a reference to gin in the world's first cocktail book, New York, 1862, it meant this. So we're going to go back to the zoo and see that T-Rex now, gents. Cheers. Cheers. Slancha. May our arms be longer than the T-Rex so we can raise That's the glass it. to our lips. I love that pronounced malt note in there. I, I love all of that. That is mm-hmm. fantastic. And the T-shirt we're going to get made is just the logo, and underneath it, not fucking gin. Because, obviously, there's a gin story as well, and we'll get around to it. But this was nicknamed gin when it was being drunk in England in the 1500s, because English people are not famous for their ability with languages, and they couldn't even pronounce Geneva. So they just called it gin. That's it. So before English gin existed, this was being called gin, and they called it Dutch gin or Holland gin or all that kind of thing, so... It's great that we're having a bit of a, a master's class on Geneva as well because I would surmise that many of our listeners don't know what it is at all. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're listening to this and you didn't know what Geneva was before this podcast, raise your hand. I recently was at a cocktail bar with some friends, and one of them remarked, this drink sounds interesting, but I want something with a little more constitution. I want something stronger. And I looked at it and it had Geneva in it, and I said, well, why do you think that it's not strong? They said, well, it doesn't have, like, a sp- there's no spirit in it. It mm-hmm. seems like it's, you know, a, a, sort of an easier-to-drink cocktail. And I was like, Geneva is a spirit. And they're like, oh, I don't really know anything about it. I yeah. thought it was maybe like like a, a liqueur, fortified wine or a liqueur yeah. or an Amaro or something. I'm like, no, that's, so th- yeah, this is interesting. And you can tell when you drink that that this sure as shit is not fucking gin. NFG. That's your thing, NFG. NFG, that's gin. a good t- hashtag, NFG. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's like if you go to a nice restaurant now, especially in New York City, where I live, like, there's always at least two ingredients on the food menu, and you have no idea what they are. It could be like an animal, a vegetable, a fruit, a sauce. And, like, I go out to restaurants a lot. I'm a well-traveled guy. Like, if I don't recognize it, they're clearly just fucking with you. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's the level of Finding a, a difficult way to say something easy. Yeah, <laughs> we all have a supercomputer in our pocket. Yeah, so if I ever see something where uh, the other thing now that you find a lot with marketing on menus and you know I obviously have a marketing background is a lot of restaurants are using like alternative phrasing or like a different name or like a historical etym- etymological name or another language and you're like I don't know what that is and then you Google it and you're like oh it's literally just chanterelles but they called it what they call chanterelles in, like, New Zealand yep. <laughs> for some reason. Well, and going back to the, like, just colloquially calling it gin, I, I have long said, it comes up every year in my time hop, uh, I have long said I aspire to have the confidence of a British person pronouncing a foreign word. Oh, yeah. Because it doesn't matter if, like, it's literally whatever I decide that is, that's what that is. <laughs> I don't care. Even if I'm standing in front of the person and it's their name, I'm going to choose how I pronounce it. I mean, the only thing worse than that is Irish people, because I have a marketing degree as well, actually. And Ireland was in such a terminal decline back then that uh, you couldn't get a marketing degree anywhere on, in the Republic of Ireland without having it as a combined degree with a language. 
right? Okay. So it was principally French. Some people could do Spanish or German. Towards the end of my degree, they added Japanese. So I am, in theory, licensed by the state of Ireland. Uh, I'm a graduate of Trinity College to speak uh, French, but let me tell you that nobody French would agree with that. I can make my way through a newspaper. I can actually write quite well, but I never went and lived there and made a jerk of myself sure. for enough that French people would speak it back to me. So, nope, hasn't, ha- hasn't happened yet. Try every time and just hope for that. That's my mark of like a good t- trip is when I can get somebody to speak back to me in whatever language I'm attempting to, to run with. We've got to make a jerk of yourself. So I am bilingual in Dutch and I never went to a class or anything. I just kind of muddled along. But there's going to be a few hiccups along the way. So I was working in an American bar in Rotterdam, the Breakaway Cafe. And it had like an American school bus as decor, right? So they kind of split the bus lengthwise. Oh, wow. And cool. that was the counter to collect food at, right? Wow. And the back end of the bus was the entry to the toilets, right? (laughs) Now, follow me along with this. In English, we don't really have guttural intonations. Like, you you can pronounce a word any way you like, and it'll kind of work. Whether someone says napkin or napkin, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But there's a few languages that are not like that. Like, for instance, Thai has nine tones. You've got rising, level, and falling. And with each one, you've got rising, level, and falling. It's really hard. Uh, in Dutch, there's not that many sounds, but there are a few, like Scheveningen, right? Koskochel. And one of them is the word yellow, right? So I would try to help people, especially older people who didn't speak English very well. Um, I'd say, you have to come to the bar, order your food there, pick it up at the yellow bus. And I would say, okay, you've got to pick your food up in Dutch at the yellow bus. And yellow is geel uh, or gele, right, in Dutch. If you haven't quite got the hang of guttural uh, things, I very often said chayl or chayla, which means horny, <laughs> right? Well, so okay. for a solid five-year so period, bang bus. I was saying, yeah, <laughs> pick up your food at the bang bus. <laughs> the horny bus, man. And There's half the be time, some the people went to the toilet anyway. <laughs> yeah. right? And no one called me on it. Like, thanks, guys. Yeah. Appreciate the help there. Pick up your sausage at the bang bus. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a, I'm bilingual in Arabic, and that is a, There's a lot of there. thing. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and you've been to Lebanon. I just found I out before we I've been to Lebanon. I have, uh, awesome. I have had uh, wine of the highest quality, chocolate, mm-hmm. and uh, arak, all at the famous uh, Chateau Kefraya. Mm. Awesome. So they make chocolate there as well. And they've got, you know, one of the world's finest wines. Mm-hmm. And we actually, with my importer, we had a nap on the lawn afterwards. And then we, we wandered around. <laughs> yeah. a bit. If you wander wine around and the back, and you go down this, like, kind of a driveway, there's a half-hidden little, um, little distillery there. And they make mm-hmm. uh, brilliant Arak, which yes. you can get. I mean, we can get it in New York. I don't know if you can get it here. And I adore it. So. We get a little bit here, yeah. yeah. And I've distilled Arak with my uncle. You can use a very small system. I mean, he had literal, actual barrels like an oil barrel that he used. And then I have uncles who have nice setups. But yeah, you can, you can have a very small footprint to make yourself some audit. Do you find yourself, being, being bilingual with Dutch, do you find yourself, the longer that you've lived in New York, that it, it falls away a little bit? Or do you get back enough that it stays? Like, that's my problem, is that I'm bilingual in Norwegian, but I only get back every other year for a small trip. And most of my friends there want to speak English with me when I'm there. And so right. it's just getting rustier and rustier. And now this last trip, I really felt like was the first time that I had trouble like having a conversation. I can read, I can write, but I 
literally could not keep up in a in a conversation anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I lived in Holland, so it got baked in pretty much, and you know. Mm. I've never had a conversation in English Merging. I couldn't have in Dutch. And well, in 17 years is a, it's 17, a very long time. But I, the, the short answer is I get back enough sure. that it works. And, I, you know, I'm talking to the distillery on the phone. I speak at um, my friend and former head bartender's uh, trade show every year, Perfect Serve Bar Show in Amsterdam. It's going to be there in September again. So that kind of keeps it up to uh, standard. Like, hilariously, I was at the bar show last September and they had a Battle of the Brand Ambassadors competition. Like just a bit of fun, a bit of fun, that you'd go up as a brand ambassador and you had to like present a cocktail, like, like bartenders do, right? And it's kind of fun. It's like, oh, these guys have to do it now, and they've been out with bartending so long. And I was hanging out by the stand of my importer, a brand new day, red carpet, having cocktails, shaking hands, kissing babies. And the brand manager for my brand came up. She's like, oh, Phil, can you help us out? There was only... Four people entered, and one of them's not here, and it kind of looks bad if there's if we don't have at least four competitors yeah. in this competition. Would you do it, like, for old Duff? And I'm like, absolutely fine. So I had zero notice, and I went up there, <laughs> and I won the fucking thing. So the current <laughs> best brand ambassador in Holland lives in New York, i.e. it's me. So I have to go back and defend my title now, and oh, I hope shit. I lose. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. There is a... <clears throat> a um, a world bartender competition that was touring around. I don't think it happens anymore, but it was touring around uh, pre-COVID. And in 07, I think they had it in Chicago. And their um, their host ended up uh, falling, getting out of a cab and breaking his leg. Oh. And they needed somebody to come. And I was just hanging out with my friends. So they handed me the microphone. And same thing happened. There was a, a spirits pour off. And nobody wanted to do it because they were all working on their recipes for, for uh. these, this cocktail show. And so I decided, because I didn't need a host, I decided to jump into that. And I came one pour away from winning the whole thing as a non-bartender. <laughs> like I wasn't even bartending at the time. And I think still to this day, it's probably the best thing that could have happened was me accidentally overpouring a one-third ounce into a blind cup. Because it would have looked really bad if the non-bartender beat all the bartenders. <laughs> Yeah. Beginner's mentality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? It's <laughs> like I did a, a lot of karate when I was young, very traditional Shotokan karate. And when you get the black belt, I think it's probably the same in other styles as well. It's actually a white belt wrapped with silk. So the longer you wear it, the black falls away, leaving the white. Because the goal of any master is to retain the student mentality. Right, it's only students who think there's some. Oh, I'm going to be the boss. You know, you're no, I got never. it. Yeah. There's always somebody else. You didn't <laughs> win. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't finish karate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what do you think? Should we? Let's roll. Should we it. jump into this? Let's do it. I think I started out. Uh, all right. So, question number one. Oh, there's actual questions. Yeah. Yeah. So, question guys, number one. You guys are organized. <laughs> you travel the world uh, in the finest of circles. When you just can't take another beautiful plate, well manicured, six garnish drink, uh, 18th course meal. If you could go anywhere on earth, if you could close your eyes and transport yourself anywhere on earth to grab a bite of street food, where would you go and what are you eating? When you Ooh. just got to get away, there's too much fancy, too rich, too everything. Oh, hard. I am going to go with uh, the Carmel Market in Tel Aviv. Ooh which is one of the most amazing places. I've been there. I've been to Tel Aviv many times, actually, but it's one of the places where we sell Old Duff Geneva there with the amazing Free Spirits & Co. And I don't know if you've ever been to Carmel Market. I've not. It's this massive 
stop me if you've heard this before, market. There's all food. and But there's lots of food stalls as well. Yeah. And the last time I was actually there, they had a bunny chow stall. Now, yes. this, oh, you know what that is? Absolutely. Amazing. Heart. So for anybody, for the minority of listeners who don't know what an obscure East South African yeah. thing is, it originated around Durban. Uh, in the bad old days of racism. And there was a dude who was playing golf and he asked his caddy, who was black, uh, could you go and get me uh, something to eat? I don't want to, I'm hungry, but I don't want to break up my round of golf. And the guy went off to a restaurant. Now, uh, Eastern South Africa, especially around Durban, is full of Indian people because uh, the Dutch East India Company was in East India. And they were also in South Africa. And if you rebelled in one country, they'd transport and imprison you in another. Yep. That's how the Indians got to uh, Eastern South Africa. So there's a huge curry culture there. It's a really nice curry. And uh, he goes in and he asks them, you know, for a curry. And they wouldn't trust him with a plate because he was black, which is really fucking horrendous if you think about it. Yes. But he's a very smart guy. He said, all right, give me a loaf of bread, scoop out the middle, and pour in garam masala curry. Mm-hmm. So that becomes your container, your plate, your knife, your fork, your napkin. All of it. And it's a specialty of South Africa evermore. So I'm wandering through this market in Tel Aviv. And they've got a, uh, a bunny chow uh, stand there. So that would be my, uh, my destination of choice. I had a, a friend from South Africa talked about it, that that was her, like, her connection food to home. Like every time she gets home, that's the first thing she has to eat because it's her touchstone. Mm. And I remembered that, but I've, I've never seen it anywhere. And so sure. I make what in my head is a good representation of what she talked about. And obviously there's a ton of recipes you can look up. So it's sort of a a Frankenstein's monster of like five or six different recipes and then going off of what she she told me about. But absolutely, I can see that. Much as curries can be or masalas can be. Yeah, also the OG bread bowl, let's fucking go. Yeah, right. (laughs) Probably is, you know, right? Charles, what's your uh, what would be your dream street food? I'm I'm going to turn this on its head and and sort of... uh, leap forward because what I, this is what I'm looking forward to. So it's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. We have a lot of big, fancy, highfalutin dinners and meals scheduled for our European trip. Uh, the f- first week of which you will be present as well. <laughs> I'm in danger. Yeah, hit the sounder. <laughs> in Copenhagen. So... Between the meals, which we've now recounted many times, Noma, Jordanaire, Alchemists, and Geranium, I need to, like, envisioning what that's going to be like, I need to break that up with smaller meals, street food, to sort of keep my feet on the ground. And I'm really looking forward to, especially now watching, like, some videos and episodes of travel shows of Copenhagen, where I have not been of enjoying the street wieners. Pulse. The, the hot dogs that they do there in their in the traditional fashion that they do them in as well and trying the various different versions of them, goat and garlic scape and pork and all the variations of, of that. I've obviously never had one in that fashion and it very much looks like my style of air quotes hot dogs because I don't like skinless dogs. I think they're disgusting, but... They do the skin on, and they look beautiful. They look like what I want to eat if I want to eat that type of hot dog. So I'm very much looking forward to, in, you know, about nine days' time, enjoying 
one of those. It might be the first thing I eat there because the first day we don't have anything scheduled, but I'm looking forward to sampling those and kind of going through uh, a few different stands and, and seeing what those are all about. It's funny. We don't do this that often, but Charles and I were texting a little bit about the questions that we wrote today earlier. And he asked me what my answer to this was. And I gave him like four other things because I was trying to hide the fact that I wanted to say that it was going to be a hot dog. snipe courtesy. You, 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 and you literally still snipe me. It was snipe courtesy. Uh, How? Wait. How is that possible? Because really the thing that I, <laughs> that, that if I could do it right now, because it's fresh in my mind, uh, my wife and I took our mothers to Norway so they could see the homeland for the first time. and uh, Very recently. Very recently. Yeah. And uh, we had one night where Jenny and I just went out without the moms. They took care of dinner on their own, and we went out and kind of did it the way that we would, went to some really fun cocktail bars, had a gorgeous dinner. And we were a little tuned up, and she was getting a gyro, which is usually my go-to. I love gyro after a few pints is my favorite. But I smelled... A smell, and I, I went Fred Flintstone on it. My little piggy toes were... And it drew me to um, a, a, a sausage stand that was serving reindeer sausages. And I got probably an 11-inch long reindeer sausage with mm -hmm. the most brilliant, pungent mustard on it. And it was fatty and unctuous and greasy, and the bun was crispy. They had toasted it, and the mustard was, like, just spicy enough and just vinegary enough that it cut through everything. Just mustard as condiment? Just mustard. Yeah. Because I said, I want it the way that you want it. That's what I do, like, 90% of the yep. time. And it was, it was absolutely awesome. Mm. Um, and that was, that was staggering. I did a little bit. They have a – it's like a – in essence, imagine ketchup mixed with sweet, sweet paprika – I did try that a little bit just because mm. it was a sauce I hadn't seen before. Sure. It was fine. I, I didn't need to add sugar to that at all. But that that bite was absolutely breathtaking. And I would I would love to be able to have that at my fingertips at any time. So good. And incredibly affordable. In a country where everything is magically expensive, uh, that was actually a pretty affordable meal. So I was all about that. It's going to be your cheapest trip ever. The exchange rate is still great. I'll yeah. be in Copenhagen myself in about a week. I mean, what? yeah, we're, we're going to be there the 4th through the 11th. No, you're going to just miss me. I'm doing a seminar there on next Sunday. So oh. this Sunday, the Sunday after. <laughs> but I've been there many times. My mates own bars. If you get a chance, just two recommendations. Uh, Humberto's amazing place, uh, Curfew, where he has an 1800s cocktail shaking machine, lovingly restored. Okay, we're going. Yeah, and my uh, expat New York uh, buddy, Jeffrey Canalau. Uh, who is also himself a fine chef, but his bar, Balderdash, is a whole lot of fun. So Balderdash... We're going to Balderdash. Balderdash and uh, Curfew. To name but two... Balderdash and Bird are the two bars on my list, and obviously we're going to a lot more bars, but those are the two that I am pointed about wanting to Definitely. go to. Bird, I don't know if... Quam, are you familiar Bird's with Bird? Bird's amazing. Dot Bird? Yes. Are you, you familiar with that? Yep. Okay. That's, yeah. Uh, that's the only bar that I've had multiple friends tell me I have to go to. Yeah, because... Of all the vinyl. Mm -hmm. It's a vinyl bar, and apparently the cocktail list is incredible. So, yeah, those two I'm making a point to go to. Yeah, any other recommendations? I, I would love yeah, to have. Yeah, no, many, many more. I mean, it's really, totally. and obviously, you've got to watch the menu before you go there. Oh, yeah. If you haven't already seen it. You're the 917th person to tell me to watch the menu, and somehow I still haven't. So I'll, I will watch it this week. I saw it when it came out, and then I watched it again after we officially booked the trip. And it's got so many great Easter eggs in it. If you are a kind of nerd about fine dining, 
Like, uh, well, actually, sure. now I can't mention any of them now unless you put like the earmuffs on. Yeah, don't, you haven't seen don't. it yet. But I don't yeah, want to ruin it for yeah. you. Charles. I have I have eighteen stars lined up between Copenhagen and Paris for ten days, so that's going to be yeah. So I have to watch the menu apparently before oh, I go. You do. <laughs> It's like dark, Car- and I like it. That's the thing. And, I mean, look, Ray Fiennes puts on a master class in everything he does. He's mm-hmm. absolutely breathtaking. But the rest of the cast just shines in that. And I cannot wait for you to tell me who you think you are I in know. that movie. I know. <laughs> well, yeah, which one are, are you? Got- is that, yeah, is that the exactly thing? Exactly. It's, it's like, which, which Backstreet Boy are you? That's what, <laughs> that's what Peter Schweiger said. Also, it's for sure AJ. Thank you very much. Yeah. But. Yeah. Or no, it wasn't Peter Schweiger. Who was it that said they wanted to know who I thought I was? Uh, Steph. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. It was, um, Todd. Todd Mulher. Todd Mulher. All right, what are we drinking next? All right, so this, if this was a movie... Would there be like a montage where someone's like, you know, working out and getting their hair cut? So we're gonna we're gonna zoom forward. We've just been drinking in the 1500s, as close as you'll ever get. To uh, Holland, it had now become a global powerhouse. It's extremely rich, and they have finally got hold of some column stills. They were first patented in 1830, and there's a lot of kind of Dutch and Belgian and German people working on them. But it was registered by a very sneaky Irish dude. Never trust a man whose first name is Anus. Was <laughs> any consolation? He was born in France, but yeah, the dude was Irish. Anyway, they start getting the column stills in Holland around 1880, and just like the Scots had done, they start experimenting with blending this neutral alcohol with malt, and they create a blended style. And that is now the style of Geneva worldwide. Got it. Right? Most most people. Like, we, of the 100% malt wine we just tasted, the whole country of Holland won't drink as much of that today. Mm. We've had more here <laughs> in the catacombs of Club Calloway in, uh, in Minneapolis, which means I'm either a genius or a fool selling this stuff. The jury's out. My favorite yeah, people yeah. are both. Yes. So let's go. Indeed, why choose? You're running unopposed. That's yeah. it, yeah. So we're up to 1880. So they created this style, uh, which would be anywhere from you know, let's say maybe 80 to 50% malt. And this went even further around the world, right? And what it is, it's 53% of the malts I mentioned earlier, two parts rye, one part barley, um, made in exactly the same, except now we have six portions of botanicals individually distilled. And that re- represents okay. what they could get in Holland at the end of the 1800s. So the ships were faster, to, so they could get citrus back to Holland. So it's got mm. orange and lemon peel, it's got coriander, and it's got aniseed and licorice, mm. right? We've also, this is at okay. 80 proof. So there's still nothing in there but, except for water uh, that I haven't mentioned. There's no sugar, there's no secret ingredients, there's no glycerin, there's no barrel aging. This was like Blanco tequila, the world's greatest spirit and all the skills stood in making it without having to resort to barrels. Sure. Right, so let's give it a little taste. And there's something a little interesting about this, I think the connoisseurs like yourselves, especially a gentleman of Middle Eastern extraction, uh, will appreciate which is to say, uh, it's lovely and approachable, uh, oh, yeah. all that kind of thing. But the aniseed nor the licorice is not evident on the nose or tongue taste. It's a mouthfeel. It's to simulate mm. sweetness at a time sure. when sugar was still expensive. That is absolutely breathtaking. And you can totally get that. Mm-hmm. Like normally if you include those, I, my brain immediately goes to like an anisette, which a lot of cultures have in conjunction with sugars, like working side by side. But having that sub in, it gives it, yeah, like a richer feel on your palate. And then there is that that light sweet on the finish. Yeah, there's a delicate anise characteristic there I'm very sensitive to. Some aras don't have like a great deal of anise. Some go heavy, some go lighter. 
but I would dare say that on the finish, you almost get like the cooling effect as well. Like that, that little bit of tickle that you get from an anisette is present there. So that's, it's really interesting to taste that after the, the, yeah. the prior example. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's lovely. I mean, just, the, the kind of insight for this is in the Dutch language, the word for licorice is zoothout, which translates that's in literal so much sense, more fun than licorice. Yeah, as sweet wood. I did not know right? that. So well. it's a sweetener. And what that meant was the price of anise and licorice had come down so much. Mm. By then, they could use it. And the price of sugar was still high. It hadn't quite collapsed far wow. enough that they That's could be chucking it in uh, randomly. So yeah, this, is, this is what became Geneva. And this, this was Geneva after about 1880. So every cocktail book after that, you know, the Cafe Royal cocktail book in 1937, the Savoy cocktail book, everyone written since then, they're talking about this or something like this. And... It, there's hardly anybody who actually knows what that stuff tastes like. There's a wow. hardcore in Holland, which is great. Uh, they, there's a Geneva Festival every year. I was just there, and it's brilliant because it's all men with, like, wild-ass John Olson beards, like <laughs> old men, and every one of them has a wife standing behind them with, like, a long-suffering look. Like, this, <laughs> this is her husband's day out, and she's just going to fucking suck it up for oh, a day. God. She knows how the rest of the day is going to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She knows exactly how this is going to go. <laughs> this is, I, I honestly, I, all I can think about is, like, doing fun things with this too. Like that that flavor palette lends itself to a lot of different flavors. It jumps off. You've got malt character, but you don't have wood aging. So there's no vanilla, no orange. So you make an amazing creamy drink like a horchata or an Alexander, but mm. it, those become like malted milkshakes because there's no vanilla or orange yeah. sure. from the wood. Like you said, you had a lot of listeners in my native Ireland. Shout out to Ireland. Uh, this and 100% malt wine have been advertised for sale. I have newspaper ads from every week of 1723 in Dublin. Wow. It's being sold there in a, in a defunct journal called the Freeman's uh, Journal. This, this was like, this was huge. And actually, given your Irish listenership, I should probably explain the bottle, uh, which is a great story. So as yes, you see... Yes, please do. I wanted to... I would be remiss not to ask you to tell us um, the label of this. And so the... Just really quickly to digress, the prior one that we had out of the flask, is that not a bottle that can be readily sourced? Is no, there... no, I just didn't have the bottle okay, here. So I had filled up my flask for the flight home. I don't know <laughs> I don't know that you did, but can you tell us the actual uh, label so that people can reference them? Exactly, yeah. Well, so the two bottles, uh, the one we're yes. drinking now is the green bottle, and the one we had first, 100% malt wine, is black. They're both in the same shape bottle. And this shape bottle... Uh, the oblong one was the world's first liquor bottle, the world's first glass liquor bottle. Wow. Because before then, uh, it, in, it was already the circular economy back then, you bought stoneware crocks. Yep. And it wasn't just Geneva you bought them in. Uh, that would be your container for beer or wine sure. uh, or olive oil or anything mm. like that. And you would go to the bar mm. and get it filled up and, and take it home. And amusingly, was this was also in the era, we're, yeah. going, we're going back to the 1500s, when there was no indoor plumbing. So if you needed to take a pee in the middle of the night, right? Chamber pot. You'd use whatever you had to hand. So the Geneva bars actually employed teenage boys called croc sniffers to <laughs> sniff. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yeah. That term go. is awful right now, imagining what a crock sniffer is. It's way worse than the 1500s, imagining yeah. what a crock sniffer is. Well, I mean, those kids are out of a job now. But yeah, they had it to smell the crocks to make sure nothing nefarious had been in them, because otherwise that would taint any Geneva that was poured on top. And then, uh. yeah. So yeah, those poor kids lost a job. Um, so this was the world's first glass liquor bottle of any liquor bottle. And it was developed by the Dutch, because they were busy going around the world, um, trying to do business, or alternatively, invading and enslaving people, plan B. And the places they were going to had no harbors. Or rather, they had harbors, but they didn't have docks. Sure. So you could bring as many barrels of Geneva as you like. There was no ramp to roll them down. So they invented this bottle because it could be packed efficiently in a crate, lowered into a rowing boat, and then rowed into shore. So for our listeners that haven't seen it, it's a glass bottle flat on all four sides that tapers down. So it's got broader shoulders and then sort of a, a shorter base. Yeah, it's a great uh, bottle. Green glass for the one that we're currently drinking and then, and then black for the, the previous. And then for us to transcribe the, the actual brand, let's do that for... Well, let's, well, let's do that. So as you can see, the label, the bottle shape kind of begs you to have a round label somewhere up here. Sure. There are some that just have oblong labels and they do look good. Sure. But they almost always had a little round label here, a medallion, and they almost always put an animal in there. Because this was a hit product. By the 1700s, 1800s, it was one of the, it was the top imported spirit in Buenos Aires, Melbourne, Shanghai, Bangkok, New Orleans, Minnesota, New York, everywhere. Wow. It was huge, massive. There was one brand called Wolf's aromatic schnapps mm. that by the time of the World's Fair in Chicago in like 1852, they had sold 45 million bottles. That's staggering. That's like Tito's numbers, right? <laughs> yeah. Without trucks to transport it anywhere, without planes, without, without trucks. Yeah, yeah. pre-truck era. So uh, they would put animals in there because like, forget about languages. Most people couldn't read or write. So they would put an animal in there as visual marketing. For instance, in the early years of America, there was a brand in America called Cardinal because America didn't even have 50 states then. But in all the existing states, uh, the Cardinal bird was there. Right, so everybody could recognize sure. a cardinal bird. And if the Geneva was old and strong, you might put in a picture of an elephant. If it was young and spicy, you'd put in a picture of a monkey. So mine has a goat, because I'm from Ireland. Uh, this is going to be the little bit of cognitive dissonance for any listeners. I would love to tell you that I'm Dutch and I have a little battered notebook from my great-great-great-grandfather with a Geneva recipe in it. That's just <laughs> not true. And I would also dearly love to be able to lie about this. But unfortunately, Google has screwed that up for everyone. Right, Google means you just can't lie anymore. Cheers, guys. So a big feature of this is that I'm asking bartenders and people like yourselves, liquor store owners, to stock it and commit to educating people about it, which is a big pain in the ass. So the least I can do is be honest with them. So I'm from Ireland. I'm from a little village near uh, Dublin on the coast called Skerries. Skerries is very little. It's 5,000 people. And Skerries, and this is documented, is where St. Patrick used to live. He was a real person. First a slave and then a missionary from Wales, poor guy. And he lived in my hometown. And he went away one day sainting and he came back and his goat was missing. So this is all documented. The next bit is a bit like, eh. So he lines up everyone in the village. And he's like, where's my goat? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Because they had, of course, stolen it and eaten it. Sure. So he took everyone's voice in the village <laughs> and replaced it with the bleating of a goat. So if you're from my hometown, just as you guys are like, you know, Vikings or Timberwolves or whatever it is. If you're from my hometown, you're a goat. So there's a goat in the label. 
That's brilliant. Right. And so this is your like mainline Geneva. The prior one we had would be the 100% malt, right? Yep. Also a goat, but the goat's wearing a tux. Ooh, okay. Yeah, this black tie. Black tie. This goat black tie is goat. drinking a cocktail. Right, we're trying to make it very obvious to people. Uh, you know, we've got the like, cocktail equipment on there. We're trying to like, hey guys, you know, we can take you to water. We want you to drink. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can take a goat to water. That's it. Well, goats right. are both cute and devilish. Absolutely. Yeah. So they sure. okay uh, and tasty. Some people have described me as that at times. Something that tastes that good that can also eat a full tin can. I mean, I'm I'm here for it. Oh, okay. Topic number two. <laughs> So we're all multi-talented, multi-potentialists in this room, I would say. Shout out to Dessa for that one. <laughs> oh, no, that was you that, that Multi-potential came from Juan, yeah. in fact. Shout out to Juan. So we've all had quite a number of professional pursuits in our lifetimes. But we aren't good at everything. Phil, can you name a job that you would be absolutely terrible at? Ooh, it would probably be uh, something technical, like either chemical engineering or electrical engineering, or okay. uh, accounting, like anything that didn't let me be uh, creative. Sure. And those were certainly the subjects I sucked in at school. I was actually, I wanted to be a doctor, and my downfall uh, was organic chemistry. Yeah. It broke me. Like, it's broken many a better person before I'm me. I'm also on that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of good, because you should have a grasp of that yeah. as yeah. a doctor. Right. You couldn't use uh, AI for that one. Yeah, yeah. And I turned, it turned out, <laughs> you know, in my current profession, I can drink almost as much as a doctor anyway. But yeah, that, <laughs> that would have that broken me, mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Telling people not to drink, but you're the one who's imbibing heavily. Yeah. Like, how much are you drinking? Ooh, you can't drink as much as me. Let me Ooh. click my pen a few yeah. times and look concerning it. I have to be able to drink more than you. Whenever Have you guys had the experience uh, of going to the doctors or a new doctor or whatever it might be? And they, they ask you to fill in the chart. In America, because America is screwed, um, it's, it's like all paper-based. That's yep. why American healthcare costs so much, by the way. <laughs> and they ask you to fill in how much you drink. And I'm always honest. Yeah. And then they look at it and then they try to bargain me down. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. that's accurate. And they're like, no, 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 we, we don't mean per month, per week. I'm like, no, no, that's, that, that's per week. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a joke. <laughs> yeah, Kwam, we have a mutual friend who at the Negroni party, we won't, we won't name them, told me that they had recently gone to the doctor and had this same conversation where they decided they're going to be fully honest about their level of consumption. And the doctor said to him, nope. That, that's, that doesn't seem right. And they were like, yes, it is in fact accurate. And they said, you know, you got to stop doing that. And they said, do you want me to find a new line of work? Mm-hmm. Because that's what I do. For Part and parcel. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I, <laughs> when, you, when you set the system up like that, and again, it's all for profit, you're bound to be forced to lie at some point. I fucking hate that shit. It's also the, uh, let's, let's, Let's be real, it's the lowest common denominator scenario where yeah. even though it's okay to consume alcohol, they set the bar a little lower than it probably practically needs to be so that people don't cheat that line. Yeah, Here's the line you should cheat, right? They're like, you can cheat this line. But if they show you a line that is more extreme, then cheating that line means a lot of consumption. Yeah. So basically it's a caution, it's not always a warning. It's a caution. That's like, fair. Hey, maybe don't go too crazy. But they, they make it so that, you know, if you go, well, the doctor said three a day is fine, so I'm going to have four a day. <laughs> I have a very uh, aggressive 
view of our healthcare system. So I, I always come into it already angry before we even start. So that's also my own shit that There's I bring into it. Not much to not be angry about, yeah. quite frankly. We live in a hellscape. Well, Charles, uh, American healthcare is like alcohol. It's a bonding agent because everybody <laughs> bitches about it. And I have a number of stories which I can pull out about this uh, disobedient colony. But my favorite is <laughs> my friend Jenny Adams. Shout out to Jenny. She's a brilliant uh, writer on lots of things, including travel and, and drinks and whatnot. She lives in New Orleans now. But we were having coffee once, and she told me about a time in her life, that magical American dream. She had really good health insurance. Like not just health insurance, like really good health insurance. Yeah. And she broke her leg. Straightforward thing, right? Mm -hmm. Nope. They denied the claim. Yep. And... The, one of the ways that health insurance fucks you is they make you call up. Like, what is this? The 1950s? Yeah. They make you call up. which They make it tricky. Everyone hates. Yeah. No one wants to do anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? But they make you call up, and she calls up, and they deny it. She's like, what the fuck? Like, it's literally black and white on the policy. Yeah. Right? And she, you know, settles her day or two. She calls up again. They deny it again. Different person. She explodes again. Uh, same thing happens a third time. And she's about to give up a few weeks later and actually pay the absurd, you know, four, five-figure uh, bill. That See, now there. she's got anxiety, too. That was the upsell. And all the time. Point of purchase. And all yeah. the time. All the time and effort when she High could have been, like, pressure. you know, curing cancer or writing a 4,000-page essay about the Maldives. Yeah. Like, so she calls up, she says, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. As they say in Dutch, I've already got a no. I can ask for a yes. She's like, I'm going to call up and I'm going to be nice. I'm going to say, hey, how's your day going? Da, 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 all this kind of thing. She does that. And every time it's a different person. Yeah, <laughs> uh, call center usually, and this fourth time, the lady's like, "Well, hang on a second, let me just look into this," and goes away and puts her on hold. Comes back after five or ten minutes, says, "You're covered. I'm going to send you an email saying black and white that you're covered." And she's getting on really well with this person, so they keep chatting a little while. And Jenny says, "Look, I can't leave without asking you. You're in this business. We're getting on well. Why do you?" allow this how come this is working now and everyone else denied it and she said well i've got to be honest with you um it's one of the in-house policies it's because you called four times how bad is Ooh. that uh, <laughs> that's dark that's I, painful uh I, i'm not gonna go deep that's into the painful. story but i check how many times i have a good friend aaron who just got her gofundme fully funded because her insurance company and she's been paying for insurance forever doesn't have anything chronic uh, they decided that her uh, chemo for her stage three cancer was elective. And like so it was they, optional. It was optional. Like getting your eyebrows done. Because she wasn't going to die within the next few months, so they said it was an elective That's, procedure. That is yeah. fucked. Ben, you so, just outdarked me. Yeah. It gets, <laughs> I, 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 my hands were shaking as I was listening to her tell me the story. And yeah, whatever. Well, Quan, what job would you be bad at? Well, apparently anything in healthcare. Uh, I feel like a librarian has to be on that list for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have absolutely no volume control, and the idea of walking around <laughs> making things very orderly and then quietly helping people and not wanting to ask more questions about why they're looking shit up. Like, I would follow people Start around. DJ said. Yeah, absolutely. But also, like, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm looking for books on um, the 1400s, uh, philosophy discussions that were going on in Baghdad, Iraq. 
I would follow that person to their table and be like, yo, let's talk about this, man. Like, can we, what if I got some books too? And then every hour we just get together and we, we, we talk about yeah, it. That sounds like a fun librarian. Right. But you're not supposed to do any of that. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, that's nope. like a bartender who comes out and sits down with you. Though. <laughs> yeah. You're not. Let's have this drink together. Ooh, I know a few of those. <laughs> you should definitely chase them though, Ben. Cause someone comes in, it's like, Hey man, you got any books on easily available neurotoxins? It's like definitely follow that yeah. guy. Let's go. <laughs> follow yeah. that dude. But you don't know why I'm following you. Like, am I going to narc you out or do I just want to participate? Who knows? <laughs> Have you guys, it's, it's a bit off topic, but there was uh, a very well-known American who died recently, Ted Kaczynski. Mm. The, yes. the Unabomber, mm. right? Which for international listeners doesn't mean he just did it once. Um, but <laughs> he was, uh, I guess you could say, he is still a world-renowned mathematician. Absolutely. Like a child prodigy, prodigy and went to Harvard yeah. and all that. And I saw a tweet once, and it was the world's greatest footnote. It was in this incredibly dense mathematical paper uh, that, you know, you look at it and you're like, this is, I can't even begin to understand. It's like 100 people can read the paper. But there's all these formulas, and the line goes, um, but as per the proof of Kaczynski, asterisk, da-da-da-da-da, this formula. And the <laughs> yeah. footnote was, asterisk, better known for other things. <laughs> Better known for other things. Oh my god, that is so good. How good is that? I mean, and not a lie, not wrong, but not wrong. Uh, maybe obscuring a few yeah. things. That's brilliant. He had a wire loose, ironically. Yeah, yeah. That's like I, the, uh, the understatement. I was yeah. I was on that path. I was in an accelerated math program at the university when I was in elementary school, and then I got to calculus. And when we brought in uh, imaginary numbers, I. My brain just quit and was like, nope. I know whose fault that is. I do not. Arabs. That's why we have X. <laughs> Arabs and algebra, man. Yes. But we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be going to the moon otherwise. I was going to say, right. I'll trade it out for, I'll take a necessary Arabic, evil. Yeah, Arabic yeah. numerals versus Roman numerals. Like, come on. That's not even a question. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, actually, uh, the Ted Kaczynski thing. The most racist thing anyone has ever called me is Unabomber. And I'm like, motherfucker, I look nothing like him. You're literally just saying it because I'm Middle Eastern. And you like hoodies. It's the beard. It's true. Yeah, Quite right. Weird. But like, come on. Quite we weird. would not be mistaken for one another. So my, the reason I even came up with this question actually is kind of funny because I remember a few years back, Marnie was kind of remarking to me that there was some availability for teaching Arabic, or I don't remember what I was, teaching graphic design. And obviously, I would never, I have, I have a successful business, I wouldn't be teaching. But we started, she kind of like jokingly was like, yeah, you could come teach. And then we sort of had this conversation about what it would be like for me to teach, to be a teacher. And one of the things I value in my career is that my communication with people is limited. It's something that actually, I love communicating with people, but when I want to, you know, like I, I have a very uh, high social acuity, but I love having a career where I can not deal with other people, never mind all of those people being children mm -hmm. of any age. They're children, even college age. Those are children. Sorry if you're college age. You're still a child. You'll find out eventually. But <laughs> having 40, for instance, 16-year-olds asking me questions, yelling, I don't play that. It wouldn't be good. I yeah. would be fired instantly. Yeah. Like, it would not go well. 
Uh, so it's, it was interesting to have that conversation with her. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I would be the worst teacher on earth. And she's like, yeah, that would not work out well. She's like, I would love to see it, though. I would love to see you in my class when they're being naughty. Like, I pop the door open and you're just standing there, like, at the precipice. And they're all like... <gasps> <laughs> so that's my easy answer. Do you know the uh, Liam Neeson story, uh, Charles? Taken? Yeah. No, 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 no. He was... Uh, so he grew up in Northern Ireland... And he was quite his, a good... His life, okay. Yeah, shocker. Uh, quite a good boxer, yeah. actually. I think, mm. you know, maybe semi-pro, uh, but definitely just a good like, boxer, right? He's the boxer. You're saying he's just like me. Exactly. Whoa. A fighter. But he trained as a high school teacher. And he lasted a week because <laughs> he was in... I think he was teaching in uh, the north of England, somewhere quite rough. And a student challenged him and then tried to punch him. And he just yep. lamped this kid. Yep. And that was his last day teaching. <laughs> so it clearly worked out for him. We need he a was... sounder for that. I don't know which one. but The, <laughs> the Biff Pow sound. The teenage kid. What did we do? Curve your enthusiasm. <laughs> just yeah. Liam Neeson just decks a kid. <laughs> bom, bom. <laughs> <laughs> just, just lights out, fucking buries a kid, and then that starts. Yeah, he was he just was slowly saunters out of the room. He was being groomed to be a professional boxer, and um, he suffered a detached retina from a blow in a sparring session that caught him right. And um, they literally said, like, that can be the very, very end, depending on how bad the detachment is. I've had scratch retinas; it's not fun. Yeah. And that lasted. The last time I had a scratch retina, that lasted from getting punched. That lasted like three years where every morning I, when I woke up, my, that one eye was so irritated that, um, and your eyes are kind of dry when you wake up that I'd have to lay in bed and allow the circulation of tears and moisture in my eye before I could open my eyes. Otherwise I would just be like blinking away the pain for hours. It's crazy. Human body's fucking weird. The fact, I don't know, do, do you guys both know this side thing? That the, the eyeball itself in humans has, its complete, has a complete separate, um, like, healthcare system, basically. Yes. Like, it's so completely, you don't go blind. It's completely contained system. off of the rest of the white blood cells in the rest of your body. Because if something goes wrong, it's so close to the brain, like, it has to be contained. That's crazy to me. It has, like, an emergency circuit that keeps us from going blind if other things turn down so that you can still navigate. Correct. Which is fucking fascinating. That's nuts to me. A, a completely yeah. isolated, separate organism. Let me grab the next bottle. Oh, yeah. Too. Yeah, but eyes also make us, as, as humans, vulnerable to memes and AI stuff. Because, like, a huge <laughs> part... It's true. You couldn't fake a dog with a meme. That's like, true. Dogs are meme-proof. But so much of our brain is taken up with visual processing. You're so right. Like memes, are, and like imagine what it's going to be like in a couple of years. You'll be able to generate political ads of like your adversary having sex with, I don't know, a goat. Like before anyone knows it's fake. Yep. Like our default is going to have to be think this is fake. And that's going to go against literally all our genetic coding. Absolutely. Our, have you guys seen the AI-generated beer advert, by the way? It's in, yes. It's so good, and the fa the fact that it's a little off, like people have six fingers, it's kind of like the Black Mirror beer ad, like beer, you're on a boat, beer, everyone's on the dock, beer, ladies, beer, drinking, beer, that's beer what, more that's ladies. That's what I thought. I literally <laughs> the first time I saw it, I thought that is the most brilliant Black Mirror like preview I've ever seen. Yeah, because it's just enough off that you don't feel you feel a little uneasy, but yeah. it's also so right on that you can convince yourself that that's working. ABN Bev was like, oh shit, this motherfucker's spitting. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the game's up, guys. They've realized. Yeah. Uh, a perfect ad, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, before before we go to the third question, we should yes. talk about what this is. Please. We are. So, montage. Um, we've moved on. What happened was uh, there were a load of Dutch and Belgian refugees who fled to northern Holland, meaning Amsterdam, but they also fled over to London. Uh, in the late 1500s, uh, by about 1590, one in 27 Londoners was Dutch or Belgian, the world's greatest Geneva-making and drinking nations. And then England got a Dutch king. It was a Dutch prince they put on the throne. No relation at all to the family, by the way. He was just willing to be the English king and uh, continue to be a Protestant. That was the gig. And he did the first thing that everybody has to do if you become king. I'm surprised King Charles hasn't done it yet, uh, which is go to war with France. <laughs> right? That's, that's job one. And to keep his rich aristocratic backers happy, because they could no longer get uh, cognac or indeed anything, because England was blockaded, he lowered the distilling taxes. So distilling was cheaper than making beer. Mm. Now, this would be great in the current era, because everyone could learn how to distill from YouTube. Mm-hmm. It did not work out that well, <laughs> right, over there. So everyone starts trying to distill. English people never drank spirits before then. They drank wine if you were rich and beer if you were poor. Sure. And the beer was only 3 or 4%. Suddenly, you're feeding poor people shittily made spirits that are 10 times stronger than what they're used to. Yeah. We're talking bodies in the street, pawnbrokers doing great business, <laughs> uh, soldiers selling their uniforms to get gin money. Yeah. It was Bad. It's much like modern day London. And uh, <laughs> things had fortunately stabilized by around at about 1750. The gin was better quality, and uh, there was a lot of big producers who had an interest in making good stuff, but it was still all based on a whiskey base like Geneva. The only thing they did differently, really, was they put in 20 times the juniper because they weren't as good at distilling as the Dutch. And that was the birth of English gin. So mm. English gin, mm. two key things are 20 times the juniper or more of Geneva. And the thing that kicked in, starting in 1830 in England, when they first came out and the English adopted them, first of all, column stills, neutral base. So now you've got Geneva, but a neutral base instead of a whiskey-like base, and 20 times the juniper. And you've mm-hmm. got something that's starting to look like English gin as we know it. But it didn't start off... Uh, as it is now. We drink globally dry gin. Sure. And that only became a thing around 1900. Before then, it started off as Old Tom Gin. This mm-hmm. was named after a guy called uh, Old Tom, Thomas Chamberlain, who worked for a very uh, respected gin company called Hodges. Mm. And back then, gin distillers did not sell direct to the public. They sold to bar owners and liquor shop owners. And you would go to the distiller and you'd taste the various offerings and you would buy it then you take it back to your shop or bar and you would water it down to the proof you wanted and you would add sugar and maybe some other stuff as well and if you were a very good customer of old tom he'd take you in his little shed and he would feed you his special reserve which was 88 proof and about 35 grams of sugar per liter and as close as you're ever going to get to it in this lifetime is what we are tasting now this is Heyman's old tom gin 41.4 percent ABV, 82.8. The Heyman family have been making gin in one unbroken line since 1863. They are my fellow members of the Gin Guild in London, associated to the Worshipful Company of Distillers, which was founded in 1638. Uh, I know uh, Christopher James Miranda, the whole family as it is. They use the same 10 botanicals, classic 
gin, botanicals, so juniper, then angelica and orris to fix the flavors, yes. uh, orange and lemon and coriander, and then cassia, cinnamon, nutmeg. Uh, it's probably one I've forgotten. It was 10 botanicals all in all. And this is what gin was from about, uh, you know, 1830 right up to 1900. And it's been brought back. To, they only recreated this product in 2007. The number of classic cocktails made of this. Cheers. Yeah, so I think, Slancha, I think probably even less than 35 grams of sugar per liter in here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Almost maraschino-y quality to yeah, it. absolutely. Ooh, right? Yeah. Right? Wow. I love, um, we, we've talked about it a lot, but a uh, friend of the podcast, Od Strambakken, who was the oh, gentleman. Odd. Yeah. I know Odd very well. So Odd was the one who um, got me back into Old Tom Gins because uh, one of his last menus at Imco uh, featured, they distilled a gin at Imco, and yeah. then um, he Old Tommed it, but instead of using sugar, he used uh, simmered down birch syrup. Oh, good. Yeah, that's very and Scandinavian. Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, every cell in my body was like, yes, this is it. And it reinvigorated my love of that style because I do love the way that you can guide it a little bit with some of the, the bricks. You can, you can kind of, with sweetening, you can also bring out different elements of those botanicals that are in there. And not that I, like, I've, I've been a gin lover for a very long time with the exception of one rough patch with Tanqueray in my early 20s. Uh, I've loved gin the entire time, but now really getting to explore into the the more the, the farther out branches of things, and then getting to the trunk of Genevieve, like this is really fun for me. So thank you for bringing this, and thank you for talking about this because this is it's it's filling in the gaps in a lot of things that I've learned in the last twenty years being in the service industry and then selling directly to bars and always kind of being into that. This is just spectacular. Yeah, I mean, there's actually two styles of Old Tom. So this is late-stage Old Tom, let's say, up around 1880 or 1890, when it's essentially London dry with a bit of sugar. (laughs) They've already switched to the neutral base. There is uh, what I term early-stage Old Tom, which is what it would have been from about 1750 to, you know, 1830 or so. And that was essentially, if you can imagine, a whiskey base like Geneva, 20 times the juniper and sugar. And there's not many examples out there. One of them is made by my mate Tad at uh, Ransom okay. Distilling I've, in Oregon. Yeah. In, in Oregon. His uh, Ransom Old Tom Gin is the most perfect early stage Old Tom. We have that in market, and I will actually, oh, wow. I've, I've picked it up and put it down a few times. I will, I will check that out because that is, that is spectacular. It's the other bookend. Yeah. To Which, this. again, to me, that's how you figure out where your palate sits. Is taste yeah. everything and then figure out where you go. Well, people liked sugar a whole lot more in the past because it was extremely rare. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I know. You do live in America, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they hadn't started putting sugar in the bread back then. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was very rare. And you showed off how much of a baller you were by how fat you were and how much sugar you had and stuff. And distillers, by the time this was being made... Uh, their euphemism for adding sugar was, you know, dulcify the distillate. Of course. Dulcify the distillate. You got to yeah. make it pretty. <laughs> you got to make it pretty. Well, the question that I wanted to ask you is uh, when I travel, I, I, love, I, I love being out in the country. I love countryside. I, love, I think it's beautiful, but I'm a city kid. I grew up mm. in the city. I'm, a city. I'm a city boy. When I travel, I love to try and find a heartbeat to a city that feels similar to the way that I do. And I don't know how better to describe it. There's just certain cities where they're pretty and I enjoy it, but it's not, what if for whatever reason, it's just not vibing with like the way that I am. 
conversely, there are other cities that the first day I'm there, I'm like, oh, this is this is where I'm supposed to be. Like something about the way that the people are, the way that everything is laid out, whatever. It just feels like, oh, this this city beats in the same rhythm that my heart does. Is there a place like that for you? Is there when you've traveled? Is there a place that instantly kind of had your heart? Yeah, it was probably Cape Town. Sure, Cape Town, which is not a stretch. Like they call it the mother city for a reason, and it is the most stunningly beautiful place. I mean. I could tell you of how horrifically dangerous it is. I could show you the crime scene photos and the statistics, and 12, af- 12 hours after your plane lands, you'd be looking in real estate windows, right? It's that beautiful, it, you know? And it's, it's on a par, like, it's not dangerous, but it's further away with Sydney. And Sydney is, is like, maybe in some ways even more so, sure. that place. It's just, you can't believe that there's a place this beautiful. And you also feel at home. Like, I, I loved living in Holland, and I love going back, and I speak, you know, and get by in other languages, and I'm just about to go hang in Lisbon, and I feel very at home in Lisbon. It's great. Uh, but I don't even feel as at home in New York, where I've lived for 13 years, as I do in London. Because in, in London and Dublin and Cape Town and Sydney, uh, everyone is out to have a, a laugh every single time like I, I always give the example like Americans are actually really polite that makes sense because it's a melting pot here and historically a lot of countries like Ireland and even back in the day England were not melting points pots till after World War Two. so uh, you know people don't make vicious biting jokes right off the bat in New York whereas they do in London or Dublin and it's a bonding way it's a way of showing vulnerability like knives, knights lifting their visor and I always give the example if I walk into a random pub in England and I stand at the bar and order a beer, it's very possible the guy next to me will say, why are you so fat? And I'll say, because every time I fuck your mom, she gives me a cookie. And that will be <laughs> my new best friend. Yep. Right? And if I relate that to an American, they look horrified. It's like, did you call the police? I was like, no. <laughs> no. And that's the culture I see in Cape Town and Sydney that I also adore. To our listeners out there, I did not know that he was going to say that off the bat. I have talked about for almost three years on this show that Cape Town is still sitting at number one. Um, my friend from South Africa, that's where she's from. And my only relationship to, to Cape Town was us sitting next to each other on her couch and sh- her busting out her photo album and showing me where she was from. And uh, it still sits in the forefront of my brain. Like, it's just one of those, you know, like a little kid that sees a movie and says he wants to go there someday. That's how I feel about Cape Town, and I will get there at some point. So thank you for reinforcing that even more. Yeah. Hey, come uh, down in November. There's a trade show. Me and my man, Kurt Schlechter, who owns the World 50 Best Bar listed uh, cause and effect bar, V&A Waterfront. Might be there as well. We'll have some bunny chow. Dude, I'm in. Go oh to my some God, dodgy bars, in. which Let's, are very dodgy. And get, get a bit a bit dodgy at the dodgy bars. Yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, I, that, if you think the Kazensky thing was understatement, dodgy bar in Cape Town is very yes. dodgy. <laughs> uh, I, I was just having a conversation with yesterday with former guest of the podcast, uh, Tyson Schnicker about uh, the fact that I sort of, I, I relate more to the notions of various other cultures where you can kind of just like speak your mind, speak your heart, and not have someone unfriend you for a lifetime in real life. Uh, I, I love that notion, and I wish we had more of that. I, I had a talk a few years ago after reading this feature with... Um, Nathan Back, also a former guest, about 
this, there was this story about an American living somewhere in Europe, and I don't remember where it was, but someone telling him after he stepped into a bar, like his friend's there, and he's an expat, um, oh, I just got a haircut, and his friend said to him, that haircut does not befit you. Here, you'd lose friends for perhaps for a lifetime. Some people would never speak to you again if you said that to them, so I, I absolutely appreciate that. In regard to the place that I feel like my heartbeat most closely aligns with that place. It is, in fact, New York City. I am a man with no land. That's something that I say about myself. I am too American for Lebanon, and I'm too brown to be a real American, air quotes. And I love where I live here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. And I love when I go to my place in Lebanon and see my family and friends there. And I do find myself feeling at home everywhere that I go. And it's not easy to select, like, what place do you feel like the rhythm of your heartbeat is most closely matched? For me, one of the reasons it's New York is culturally the and, and very much that notion of a melting pot. Like, people are people. And there aren't a lot of places in this country where people are people. When you walk down a street in New York City... Human beings don't judge one another strictly based on their ethnicity in particular. I'll, I'll like start and end there. They judge you if you're walking slowly. Yep. That's the yes. worst thing. <laughs> or if you don't know where you're going. I'm like, walking Get the fuck here. out of here. But the, the idea that when you look around in Lower East Side and you're traversing the streets, maybe going to grab a cocktail after a nice dinner or a cigar at Carnegie Club. Or fucking up some Gian Famous at St. Mark's Place. Hey, we've, we're done eating. We're done eating. You are. Okay. Yeah. For the moment. <laughs> yeah, for the moment. Hold on. And the people are just swimming around you, and it has that very, um, like, all the NPCs around you are having different conversations and different experiences, <laughs> and they're sort of, like, swimming around you. Yeah. There's something about it that just makes me feel like I can just, I never have to adjust my personal trajectory of what my evening is, who I present myself as. Uh, I would say that people there can be more honest than in cities such as ours. Like if I sit down, because I travel to New York alone a lot, if I sit down at a bar and sidle up to someone else who's also traveling alone, I can have a very honest conversation with a total stranger in a way that I think a lot of people don't believe is, and we've talked about this before, a lot of people don't believe is possible in a city like New York because people are led to believe that New Yorkers are rude or mean or aggressive. They, you grow a carapace, but uh, you are right. Like Big cities are anonymous, and I love them. I come yep. from a tiny place, obviously, 5,000 people. Scary's North County, Dublin. But I, I've, I love big cities. Like I yeah. lived in Grand Cayman in uh, the mid-90s, and then the population was 10,000 people. Yeah. You have no private life at all. None. Everybody Zero. Right? Sure. You just can't get away. So I, I like oh. the anomaly of big cities. But when I was still dating my wife about uh, probably 12 or 13 years ago now, I was living in Amsterdam. She was in New York. I would come over for three weeks every three weeks. Mm. And I would get up at 5.30, shoot off to the gym, head to a Starbucks, and I just bang out all my European work. And by like lunchtime, I was kind of done. And you know, she'd be at work, and I'd go off and explore the city. And I was just walking around one time. I believe it was sort of Tribeca area, and I saw a bar called the Pint of No Return. Had to go in. Had to. <laughs> yeah. Had to go in. 
mm-hmm. this was the time of the Occupy Wall Street protests, uh, yeah, yeah. if you remember. Yeah. So it's it's probably like 3 p.m. The bar is pretty much empty. There's a, a young lady, like, I don't know, 22, and she's over in the corner there because her phone is kind of plugged into a, a plug behind the bar. She's yeah. Her phone. And it's me. And me, her, the bartender get talking, and the, the lady customer, she's like, well, you know, I really support... Uh, Occupy Wall Street, and I feel guilty, but on the other hand, I've got a job, and I work, and I don't want people to give me stuff, so I feel I should be there, but not, and I'm all this kind of thing. And we're having a very nice conversation. And then an older gentleman comes in, suit and tie, clearly just finished work, and he joins the conversation, we're chatting away, and I say a certain point in reply to a thing he said. It's like, so, um, that's funny you mention that. I read this thing the other day, and, and he stops, he goes, oh, are you one of them? And I'm like, here we go. So, <laughs> you know, he's ask me how I vote. And he goes, a reader? <laughs> like, what? And he snorted like a racehorse. And I'm like, Whoa, my dude, you got me. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> One of them. Oh my God. That's how you got me good. You oh, got that's me good. Fucking brilliant. To just put a cap on it. That's like, I would say that perhaps the thing that makes me realize most yeah. of all that that's the city that that is applicable uh, for me is the fact that that's the city that I... I'm least comfortable staying in my room. Like I need to be in the thick. It's really, when I'm in New York City, I can't be in my room. I have to be out in the action amidst the human beings walking through a park or in a bar, uh, at a restaurant, in a museum that like, I just need to be around it. Like I have to feel that, that blood flowing through my veins. I, I agree with you. I mean, New York City is one of my favorite places on earth, and I love it because much like being in the mountains, being in New York makes me feel insignificant in the best way possible. It reminds me that all of my bullshit doesn't really matter that much. It reminds me that there are so many infinite possibilities that I continue to not see when I'm in my own shit. But... um the city that, like, and I, I, there was a long time in my 20s when I really wanted to move there, mm. um, and I would put Oslo on that list, too. Sure. But I'm 43, and I have a different life. Next year, my wife and I are celebrating our 10-year wedding anniversary, and the city that called to me the most was Dublin. I could not believe how quickly I fell in love with a city that I didn't, for, for you, Philip, like, my wife and her best friend planned a trip, and when they left that morning, we were probably going to go to New Orleans or New York, and they came home with tickets for Dublin. So I had nothing to do with planning it. I, like we, had take, we had decided on the time we were going to take off. But because of that, I kind of went into it more blind than I normally would, mm. and I just wanted to experience this country that has always kind of called to me because I'm a music obsessive, I love comedy, and I love telling stories. And all of my Irish expat friends here in Minnesota had always said, like, you, you just got to go. You just got to go go check out Ireland. And Dublin just, it, it killed it for me because everywhere I went, music was there. Music is woven into everything you do. Whiskey is woven into everything that happens. You're on a river, so if you ever need centering, you can just walk to the Liffey and take a look at it. And... I loved that. I loved the fact that like random bartenders would give me shit because that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's go back and forth a yeah, little bit. Let's yeah. play. Let's play the rounds a little bit. And I loved all of like all of that. It felt like somebody had designed 
Like when we went into random bars and like a bartender would give me shit or somebody at the bar would give me shit, I felt like somebody had planned this out. And these, these people were all a part of a grand plan to really make me fall in love. Uh, when we went to the, you know, we, we did some touristy stuff and we went to the, the Brazen Head. And turns out that the guy who literally lives next door is a barrister at the, the court. Courts. And uh, he took me around for like 25 minutes telling me stories about like all the things that had happened in those walls because he really doesn't go anywhere else besides that and to work. And that was, I, that was everything that I wanted. I loved it. And you don't get any short stories. There's never a quick, like just two sentence. You're going to get the whole story. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about on the show before, another former guest of the podcast, a musician named Billy McCarthy was in Dublin at the time now in Geneva. And he came and met He'd up been with there us for a while. Yeah. He had How been there for he been there? He'd been but there a year. For- Oh, a year? I thought yeah. it was longer. No, okay. uh, but a year. He was traveling back and forth, but he was, he, all of his stuff was still in Southern California. And the two of us, we, my wife and her friend and her husband all met up. We all went there together, and then they peeled off, and the two of us sat there. And we were at a larger table, and three more groups of people just sat down with us and started talking. And people in Minnesota would never do that. If they did, they would say, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. And then they would turn to make sure that you saw that their shoulder was cutting you out of any conversation so as not to be rude. Giving you the cold shoulder. Exactly, <laughs> which, which we are famous for here. And to me, oh, hold on, that's, sorry. Just if you want to set the bottle. You'd be creating a new gin hybrid. Well, I mean, <laughs> the Brazen Head was actually my after work pub. I used to work right across the river. Brilliant pub. And Absolutely loved it. Uh, but I think what's calling you to Ireland is your is your genetics because I did twenty three and me recently, and you, well not recently it was a few years ago now, and you get to see all the other results etc etc etc. I don't network with other people because I want to keep my options open in case I wish to become a serial killer. Right? <laughs> Apparently yeah. people are getting nabbed on that shit all the time. Uh. Um, but no, everybody Irish <laughs> is somewhere between zero point eight and one percent. Viking. Oh, absolutely. Because they were the first to invade, and then the next wave was actually the Iberians. Yep. So we've all, like, dark-haired Irish people have literally Iberian blood in them. My, my wife uh, has raven black hair and pale white skin, and boy, did she feel comfortable walking around. And I did love, like, the amount, I, I, I did 23andMe, and I'm 96.4% Scandinavian, and I did love the amount of Viking history that exists all around there, and the amount of, of trade that was sort of done side by side, mm-hmm. and then, you know, taking the, the Ishkava, and then turning that into what became Akavit, and watching, like, the Odavi and the Water of Life go through all of Europe. All of that is fascinating to me, and I'm sure that that's buried in there somewhere, but my people don't sing songs at bars unless they're fucking hammered if i could very quickly digress my brother did one of those i've never done one he did one and i probably have never i'll probably never tell this on the air if i don't do it now but he took one of those tests and he calls me and he's like oh i'm we're three percent this and two percent that and nine percent this and he like named all this stuff and i'm like all right like it didn't really matter to me i'm lebanese as far you know i'm like i'm lebanese so he calls me like six weeks later and he says hey uh they sent me a follow-up or they called him i don't remember which he says, uh, I'm 100% Lebanese. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what it was, but they were like, oh, we fucked up actually. Wrong you're, sample. You're literally just Lebanese, which I don't even know if that's possible. But it's funny because he told me that. That is a fact. That's he, amazing. Well, bear in mind, somebody these... else got your results and like, I'm Lebanese? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know fuck? how it worked. But <laughs> I love that. That was fucking that hilarious. Some blonde like, person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, sort of like Southern mom, California. Mom, we're going to have to have a talk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for it's, it's not... 
it's not that hard for me to understand that about my genetics. Like we have one of my lines traced back to the 1600s. The rest of them are all traced back to the same area in the 1800s. And there's no access. Norway was so poor and, tra and transportation was so awful back then. Like no one left. So my people lived in the same valley for a thousand years. We're probably all related. But there was something right. about, it was, it, there's something familiar about Oslo and Dublin being harbor towns and having history, but growing up, I think that that's a familiarity, but it's all the things that I love in my life that my Norwegian roots typically don't allow for. Right. Long stories with strangers, music everywhere, making jokes with people that you don't know intimately. Those are all things that are absolutely forbidden in Norwegian culture. And in Ireland, it's, it's rolled out like a red carpet. And it, I, I just kept laughing. The that last night we were talking to the bartender on our way out because he sent us with two pints. To well, go is it, is the, it similar to Danes, where uh, magnifying yourself is frowned upon? There's like a phrase for it. Yeah, in, it's the 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 law of Jutten, um, where you're not supposed to brag. Is it similar? That's tied up same. in that. That's tied okay. up in that. But it's also like culturally, it's similar. Your your business isn't anybody else's business and anybody else's business is not your business. Interesting. And yeah. inside your own house, you can talk about how somebody else isn't doing it right. But when you pass them on the street, you say, hi, or you just nod your head and you keep walking. It's very okay. like, very like Holland. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, and okay. I, I feel a weird, like maybe it's just the tall thing, but there's also a weird commonality between the Dutch and, and especially Denmark into the Scandinavian. Well, to go to go two ways. We brought something up that I think I don't know if it's come up uh, before on your podcast with like ninety odd episodes. It might have. Um, do you know about the Breton laws? The Breton laws of hospitality in Ireland. I do not. So all this thing about oh Irish people are really hospitable. Believe it or not, that was legislated. They didn't used to be. <laughs> okay, right? you were forced to be nice. Yep. <laughs> And forced to obey the law. Forced hospitality. <laughs> Fucking sucks. We could have been Norwegians, yes. guys. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, so Ireland used to be a literal sort of, you know, uh, Game of Thrones, barely held together island. And it was all warring fiefdoms and yeah. clans and multiple kings and princes and everybody was killing each other. This is all And Nor bear in mind, they all look the same, you this know, like the Middle East. This is all Norwegian's history like, yeah, the same. <laughs> right? So they're fucking murdering each other. I was like, well, this isn't good. So okay. they came up with some of the oldest I want to watch it on HBO, but all right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's kind of, if you watch Game of Thrones with a bottle of James, That's it's it. the same thing. Um, <laughs> so they came up with one of the oldest codes of law, certainly in Europe, maybe in the world. Mm -hmm. It's not quite as old as the Code of Hammurabi. But uh, the Brehan Laws mandated a whole lot of things, different things, dissolving, resolving disputes and laws and whatnot. But one of them was hospitality laws. If a traveler knocked at your door, you were required to give them, it was usually him, a bed for the night and hot meal and something to drink. Wow. And the only payment they could offer was their stories or a song or whatever it might be. Oh, that's and this is this is really cute. This is very, you know, far and away Amy Adams type movie stuff. But the reason was to reduce internecine warfare between the clans and build non family relationships. I mean it's brilliant if you and, think about it. And that's where it came from. So yeah. the, the and that married up with a whole other thing. So Irish people gradually saw the benefits of being nice and hospitable and working together and accepting people and also telling stories became literally a way to stay alive, mm -hmm. right? And that then translated into, you know, pubs and, and hotels and whatnot. But the Irish pub 
actually owes its existence to yet another in the long list of people who have invaded Ireland at various times, which was the Normans, yep. who were French mercenaries. So they invaded Ireland, and like every French person, they drank wine. So they imported wine to Ireland, and they set up shops where you'd go and buy a barrel of wine. And you might want to taste the wine before you went to the shop, so they would let you taste the wine. And over time, the shop evolved more to selling tastes than barrels, and that is the birth of the Irish pub, or one of the important strands. And that's why when you travel around Ireland, especially in the countryside, over the name boards of country pubs, you'll see so-and-so, O'Donoghue, licensed vintner. Yep. You probably shouldn't drink wine in Irish pubs, but that's where it comes from. It's a nod to the history. It's amazing. The Irish pub. Wow. Yeah, yeah. There's it, it, it. That similarity between Norwegian slash Scandinavian culture and, and Irish culture, it's just all of it's it's similar enough, but it's all the things that I love in my own personal life expressed in the city. So that's the that's the heartbeat that I love, and uh, I want to I want to cheers to that. So, so what do we what do we have here? To the next one. All yeah. right, now we're up to 1900. Right, we're into the final stretch. We're going to go back in time a little bit with rye whiskey because it's the long-lost cousin. So we are drinking Heyman's Dry Gin for reasons that no one has been able to winkle out entirely. It could be just pure luck. I think it actually probably was. A mania developed for dry drinks around 1900, especially in the USA. Mm. Probably first was dry vermouth. Mm -hmm. So the Martini Company launched Martini Extra Dry in the US around 1900. It was their knockoff of Noix Prat, the French yeah. coastal yeah. extra dry vermouth. And it was a mega hit, like a fireball level hit, right? And not long after that, English dry gin rocked up on these shores. All the gin previously having been... Uh, like the old Tom gin that we had. And what happened was, to do a little bit of mixology history, uh, around, let's see, what was it, 1883, this, a description of this cocktail began popping up in places like Cleveland and New York in newspapers. And sometimes it was called a Martinez, and sometimes it was called a Manhattan. And sometimes mm -hmm. it was called a Turf Club, actually. But it was more or less the same cocktail. It was... One of two types of booze and sweet vermouth and maybe some bitters and maybe a dash of something fancy like maraschino or absinthe or curacao. And the booze is described as being whiskey or gin, which doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. unless you know that they were referring to 100% malt Geneva or something else. Okay. And by, yeah. by 1884, it had codified. The Martinez was Geneva and sweet vermouth and bitters and a few bits and pieces, and the Manhattan was American whiskey, rye whiskey, and sweet vermouth, and, bit, bit, and a few bits and pieces. So, 17 years on, this dry vermouth shows up, and everyone goes mad for it. So, the bartenders start mixing it with, you know, one of the number one spirits, which is the whiskey like Geneva. Tastes awful. If you've ever had a dry Manhattan, you've certainly had one. No one has ever had two. <laughs> dry vermouth does not mix well with whiskey, or whiskey like things right. like Geneva. So, the bartender's like, fuck, Right? And then they tried to mix it with rye whiskey. Didn't work. Damn it. And they thought to them, wait a second. Geneva is Dutch gin. What if we mis mix this dry vermouth with this new dry gin from mm. England? Mm -hmm. And that was the birth of the martini. There it is. Right? And this is it. And we are drinking again. Heyman's gin. Same stuff. Same 10 botanicals. Different proportions. No sugar. And you guys here once more in this disobedient colony which doesn't deserve it, actually get something that the rest of the world doesn't get. There is a circular logic in the higher 
circles of liquor marketing that Americans want 94 proof gin because the best selling gins are 94 proof. So most people make their gin 94 proof. That is to say 47% ABV. Heyman's is normally 82.8 proof everywhere in the world except here. And we are drinking it at 94 proof here. Really? Okay, so wow. Rather, I did not know that. It is oh. ra- Everybody, like even Hendrix is stronger here than the rest of the yeah. world. Bombay Sapphire is stronger here than the rest of the world. So, you know, when you go to London and people are like, Bombay Sapphire sucks, they kind of have a point. <laughs> Because they're not getting it. Like you get Gordon's in London. It's 37.5%. Yep. It's 75 proof. Oh, yeah, it really sure. sucks. Sure. So we are getting the good stuff here. This is remarkable. This is a benchmark London Dry, the classic botanicals, a family that have been doing it since uh, 1863 and really do do it. And, you know, when you taste it, uh, neat gin. Not new to you chaps, but mm. maybe not something that everybody does. Mm. Like, it's remarkable. It's integrated. It's... This is a stunning benchmark martini. Absolutely. Have, you know, this is something every gin maker uh, should aspire to. I'd like to see more of it, and uh, at least amidst the circles that I travel in, I'm seeing more sipping gin. Mm-hmm. It's okay, but it, it, it's interesting, you know, now 41 years of age, that every passing decade that it seems less treacherous to say like let me just pour myself a gin even here in the classy confines of club caraway uh we have a vast assortment of whiskeys in particular but i myself often get fatigued with simply drinking whiskeys and we've started carrying some variations you know we have some agave spirits and and some gins and i'm noting that there seems to be a little more demand surrounding that like yeah i've had a lot of brown how about something else so I, I I quite like that, and that's and that is a great. It's so good. Gin. I both, love both of the the Heymans that we've had. They're amazing. I actually my one of my favorite martinis is instead of using dry vermouth, I'll actually do um, just a few dashes of Lillet Blanc, mm. and the sweet citrus notes with the citrus notes in here, it dances so well to me. I just I love that, just brilliantly uh, cold, and then just sipping on that is a little slice of heaven. But I, I, I admit, I have not just drank it by itself in quite a while, and this is just delightful. Yeah. No, I mean, we are in a golden age. We're in a golden age of spirits. We're in a golden age of cocktail bars. Yep. Um, we're in a golden age of cocktail books. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, man. When no I was question. coming up, especially when I lived in London, and you're looking at, you know, the, the early 90s, I used to walk into every bookshop just hoping there'd be a good book. Because even then, you'd see... Yeah. Because what happened was, they would ask somebody who normally wrote books about desserts, like, can you do a cocktail book? We want to get it out for Christmas. And they would go, and they'd buy the previous shitty book that had been written, and then they'd just, like, fuck around with it a bit and get it out again, right? And it was, yeah. I remember the first time I read a book, and I'm like, this dude gets it. And it was actually Gary Regan's bartender companion. Yes. Gary became uh, a dear friend of mine, and we traveled together and I hung out together book. many, many times. Oh, that's fantastic. Yep. So I like the transition to topic number four. Charles, real quick, before you ask that, I just want to make sure, what, what is our, I, I, I'll cut this chunk out, but what is our time constraint? I, don't I mean, know I'm that. good. You're I good? We can I go, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think we're, I think we're floating around. More, I've got more than enough time, frankly. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Keep it in. We're talking about, yeah, this this man is going to catch a flight. But no, we are. I I, think we're good. I felt like earlier in the thread there was something about a 445, so I just wanted to make sure. No, no, no. I'm good good for at least another hour. Okay, all right, all right, perfect. Well, let's fucking party. 
This is a, uh, I, I welcome the transition because we're talking about particularly in reference to my answer to this. But you've certainly generated all manner of wildly imaginative cocktails over the years. But what are you drinking when you're sunk down into your most comfortable chair in NYC, relaxing with Dave the Gecko? Shout out, Dave. What's up, homie? What up, Dave? What up, Dave? When you're able to relax and not care in the world what anyone thinks about it. Exactly. Well, my wife is also in the business. And we've got a kid, so I have the greatest respect for um, Muslims on a lot of levels. But they raise kids without alcohol. It's like, Jesus. Uh, The end of a hard-working day. Uh, it'll be my favorite commercial beer in the world, which is Negra Modelo. Mm, delightful. Okay. Negra Modelo. And usually a neat spirit. Uh, it could be Geneva. It might be one of the new brands that my wife works at now, Mezcal Vago. We've got a lot of <sighs> okay. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One um, of my favorite Mezcal stunner, producers. Stunner could be some of the few whiskey from Chicago, especially the one that's been proofed down uh, with cold brew coffee instead of water. That's really Ooh, nice. Let's yeah. go. Yep. That's really Seen nice. That. And we like martinis. We'll make freezer martinis. So I'll make them after lunch. Uh, four to one, uh, uh, you know, a Heyman's or a Tanqueray. Uh, stick them in the freezer. And then we actually, I adore, and my wife is like, she's okay with it, um, Gibson's. Yeah. So I buy Mazetta cocktail onions, which are the best commercially available cocktail onions on the market. They're big. Uh, they actually grow in Holland, coincidentally, but it's an Italian company. And I'll have like three of them speared. Uh, the good weather, if we don't have the Canadian wildfires, we'll go up on the roof of our building, bring a couple of camp chairs, and just pour them out there and look at the East River, and that will be our, our closing down drink. And then the rest of the evening, it'll Delightful. be probably straight Geneva or straight whiskey and the occasional uh, Negro Modelo. Oh, that sounds nothing wrong with any. No, of that. that sounds absolutely wonderful. Uh, for me, I've uh, I've talked about it a lot. I worked in craft beer for almost eight years, and I am still on my. I need a little break from casually drinking beer at home. I love when I'm out. A really cold lager is still wonderful for me. But I spent too fucking long having to drink IPAs for work, and it just has not gotten there. So. Uh, as we talk about a lot, uh, Plift, my company, is one of the sponsors of the show. I really love unwinding with the juicy grapefruit flavor. Has really kind of is on a hot ninety degree day. So good, low dose THC. I'll just kick back with that that's a little my, bit. That's my flavor. And then uh, what I've been doing, it pairs really well with Blanco Tequila. The vanilla notes in that with the bright citrus grapefruit in it. I love that play back and forth. But honestly. I haven't been doing as much back and forth because it's just been so fucking hot out that if I do this, my wife's usually asleep and I'm going to go downstairs and play video games or watch sports. Uh, I've been doing, um, I'll drink the Plift first and let that kick in where I feel myself relax a little bit. And then I go back up and uh, I haven't talked about this in a long time. Mm. My Infinity bottle is banging right now Which for one? whiskey. For my whiskey Infinity whiskey bottle. One. Yeah. So I'm sure you're familiar with this. I am. Uh, my bottle is somewhere between 60 and 70 uh, bourbons and, and whiskeys now, and I've never let it get below 25% in that bottle, and I've never put more than 10% of a 750 into Back it. Back into it. And okay. the mix of where things have just... So for me, for our listeners out there, it's kind of like I have a, like a decanter, and then 
anytime that I have a whiskey, usually American, that is getting low in the bottle, people in Minnesota hate finishing the last pour in a bottle. So it became a way of not having eight bottles that were almost empty. Dump them all in together, and then you can kind of control where the flavor goes. We've been really fortunate to have a number of people that have come by and left a bottle of whiskey that when they've left. And it's brilliantly sweet. I, I would estimate it's probably somewhere between 93 and 95 proof. And it's just spectacular right now. So that's been my thing is I'll pour that neat and then I'll just very gently take little nips of that. Is it at a point where you really love it right now? Or I do. Or are you modifying it repeatedly? I don't. It's like, been at a good I haven't spot. added to it in almost two months because I'm mm. so afraid that I'm going to break yeah, it. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, there's something to be said about that. I am not an infinity bottle kind of guy. I had, I've had multiple from you. The whiskey, at whatever point it was that you gave me a sample, I adored the rum, I it was like at a point that what, that didn't speak to me. Yep. But it's interesting that like some people subscribe to that sort of what I what I and like I've fucked it up before. Uh, no shade to the company because I've met a few people and they're very nice. Mm-hmm. But I poured some Balcony from Texas in there and it almost fucking ruined it. I almost oh, okay. dumped the whole thing out. Well, I, you, so you tried to level it. You tried to find how to. I've been fixing it for like this is the first time in almost a year that I'm happy because I can't taste mm-hmm. the that Balcony in there anymore. Um, but the point is, in essence, if you're unfamiliar with this idea, is that. Anything that you put in, as long as you don't ever finish it, everything that you put in there is all still in there. And I kind of enjoy that. I, I love single spirits very, very much. There are certain brands that I will, for the rest of my life, probably chase and treasure. But it's kind of fun having your own little house blend. Especially when you have standards as oh, to like the it. quality of it. what goes into Saying it. It's, I, I know why it's done. Mm-hmm. Not for me. And yeah. I've had some... I've had some really good ones. The whiskey one that you gave me a sample of, this is a while ago now. This is like three years ago. Yep. It was very good. So your so your selection for this particular query is having that? I go plift first to relax. Yep. yep. And then that shuts my brain down so I'm not busting my phone out. I'm not trying to, like, I can watch something or I can play something and I'm focused in. Uh-huh. And then I just take little sips of that. Yeah. And that is, like, that one, like, maybe two, two and a half ounce pour neat. will last me, neat, will last me an hour. Because I just enjoy taking Absolutely. little sips and rolling all of that beautiful, like, vanilla, brown sugar, caramel all around my palate. Hanging with Harold. Yeah. Hanging with Harold while he's potato, potato, bodado-ing on my shoulder. (laughs) What's, what's your, I feel like I know what yours is, but. What is it? An ice cold high life sitting outside. Great guess. Okay. I mean, the easy guess would be a ice cold high life with a side of Malort. Yeah. But I think the default year round for me, and especially like the double lock the doors situation. And because also we're talking about Geneva and gin here. Hey, I like dirty vodka martinis and I don't care who knows it. Uh, really dirty, incredibly dirty. Do we have martinis. a freezer martini upstairs? The martini that I prepared that is upstairs in the poor spot carafe is a classico. So uh. it's the, it's gin with the orange bitters. Yeah. So it's, that that is available was, here. We literally have a freezer martini upstairs. Excellent. We'll have to <laughs> test that. But yeah, you know, everybody should have the martini that they like. Yep. I like when the dirty martini came out. This is how long ago it was. It was the the old the, the bartender question was, 
Uh, do you want it, Brittany or Christina? <laughs> exactly. I still oh, yeah. No, I, I remember the first time someone uh, posed that in that way to me. I was at a casino for a bachelor party, and I ordered a dirty vodka martini, and the bartender asked me, how dirty? I said, really dirty. And they said, uh, oh, Janet dirty? Janet Jackson? Janet Jackson dirty? If you're nasty. Interesting. Yeah. Nasty. Miss yeah. Jackson. So nasty. I, I guess I didn't realize that it was frowned upon by some people, but I have some friends who are like, oh, you put vodka in your martinis? I love all martinis equally, the entire spectrum. Give me every one of them. But also, I'm a yeah. big savory slut. I have a salt tooth. And with vodka being as neutral as possible, sometimes I literally just want... The salinity, I don't really want to experience anything but, like, just salt. Salinity like now! Salinity now! I'm drinking a glass <laughs> of salty vodka, yep. in effect, uh, with, obviously, the undertones of the olive itself, because I go really heavy on the olive. I have, a, I have a formula for what I make for my batched martinis at home, my dirties with vodka, and I adore them. But, of course, I go across the spectrum. And if I go to a nice bar, I'm never going to tell them, make me a dirty vodka martini i say make me a martini if i go to meteor for instance who are shout out to meteor clients of mine i did their branding and their launch menu when i walk into meteor i say make me a martini Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna tell you what to do make me a martini and it's gonna be fucking perfect Mm -hmm. but if i walk into an old steakhouse for instance or a dive bar i want dirty Super dirty vodka martini, little floaties, and the ice shavings floating on top. That's what I'm looking for. And that's basically what I make at home. When you return home, and by home I mean New York, uh, there has never been a better time in its history, I don't say this lightly, to drink martinis in New York. Because they have gone completely off the deep end and out the other way, and everyone's got their own one. So the dirty martini has been seized upon, and I've just created, updated, twisted, adapted, bum, 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 11 martinis for a major international vodka brand. So I've been deep in the research. I literally finished an hour before I came here. Right? Well, really? can, yeah. we, can, we, can we pose a proposition? Charles, can I talk about this? This will be the first time we've actually acknowledged where we're going. Yes, please. So uh, in the middle of October, we are taking this show to New York for a week. Oh, sweet. Uh, I don't know from the 9th or 10th through like the 16th, 17th, if there is any chance that you were going to be around, I think we should do this in person together. If, if we're there, uh, we'll be doing it. Absolutely. But yeah, just to uh, never been better. Every conceivable option of it from super cooled, where you have a $4,000 machine, where you pour out a vial of water that freezes as it reaches. Yeah, and then you pour the gin over and swirl it. That was actually invented at the world's 50 best bars. Number one bar, Paradiso in Barcelona. You can do it at Barely Disfigured in Brooklyn too. But for you, um, and this was in Punch or Vine Pair or something recently, uh, I have have respect for dirty martini drinkers. Um, My friend, Channing Santino, a very great bartender, uh, while at Bonnie's, a, I believe it's Chinese, Filipino, or maybe just Chinese-owned place in Brooklyn, mm. um, wanted to I've do a better dirty martini. And he also mm. wanted to take back MSG because the We problem, love MSG here. Yep. Yeah, the pro- obviously the MSG controversy was racism, and people didn't even know they were being racist then. It wasn't... Yes, well, some I probably, just explained this some of them probably some did. people last weekend. Yeah, but what he has done is they have a proprietary brine, mm-hmm. and 
Channing says, look, you know, you don't have that. You just got to get a nice brine, get a nice Serignola olive, whatever, and just add a couple of pinches of MSG to it. And his MSG martini is well written about and lauded and delicious. So something you can uh, take test drive yourself. There is MSG in my house martini. There you go. Great I minds. MSG in it. But batching is difficult because it doesn't homogenize very well. Nah. So now I've come to you. That's the last thing at the end is adding the olives and then... Well, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Channing actually makes a solution. Yeah, that's... Sure, yeah. It's, he uh, makes a solution is, is to add... Is there any chemistry involved or... No, no, it, you can just purely dissolve it. Same yeah. way you'd make a saline solution. Sure, sure. And same yeah, yeah. proportions, yeah. roughly, as I do. well. As I found as when I do full-on batches in a 750 ml bottle that the bottom ends up being, like, regardless of how I homogenize it, I end up having a lot more MSG at the bottom of the mm. bottle. Interesting. But it's possible that perhaps making the solution separately and then utilizing that. Well, you could add it like drops. Yeah, and I've started doing... Exactly right. I yes. changed my proportions in the solution, so I've started doing 80% water, 20%, yeah. or five parts to one. Um, that really... I've never seen it separate out after doing that. I had it closer to like 60-40, and it would always do that. But mm-hmm. once I got it to 80-20, it was fine. Also, I I'm, think when I'm dashing it in granularly and then shaking the bottle, it just doesn't want to homogenize sure. when it's in that form. It's just, it might be like too little to the... I don't, I don't know. Also, can we give... Can, can Genie Sprinkles do dual uh, jobs? I feel like MSG Sprinkles also qualifies as that. Because that's what I think when I put MSG in my food. That's what I think. I'm doing a little little genie sprinkles right across. I did just tell my yeah, I think I may have told you about this, Quan, but I told my in-laws last weekend yeah, that you I told put me MSG in everything. And there was a little bit of bewilderment. Like, whoa, really? That's You put it in everything? And then we had a little conversation about it. Because I, it, no fault of theirs. They just hadn't heard otherwise. So we had a conversation about MSG and how delicious it is. And I looked back. I was sitting at the kitchen nook table and I pointed at the counter behind me and I said, look at what's most readily available. I have a million spices and seasonings and what have you inside my pantry. But what's just beside my stovetop, the things that are most readily available, olive oil, salt, pepper, MSG. It's always there. Mm-hmm. I put it in everything. Same here. Everything you eat that I make, there's MSG in it. Same here. Sweet and salty, quite yep. frankly. Just like us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, let's do that. Let's just go cook. You want to just fuck off on the plane and just come hang out and cook and drink martinis with us? <laughs> I mean, asking an Irishman of my generation to cook is quite a stretch. Like, no, I you just hesitate have to, to make toast. Just hang out in the kitchen. That's See, the that best I part. Can do. I can like, do it's, it's my wife hangs in the kitchen with me a lot when I'm cooking, and she just literally like she sits on the floor and drinks wine with while our dog lays next to her, and she's very happy. And I love because she's in the kitchen. I thought that was like a traditional Norwegian thing, like the wife doesn't get a chair. <laughs> <laughs> sit on the floor, it's a, but it's a very clean wooden floor. It's very light, light wood, <laughs> blonde wood, blonde wood. Of course. Uh, wait, is that is that me? Is it you? Yeah, I think so. Uh, do we, what, should we move on to the next one or are we? We have uh, five total bottles, so we can cheers this if we have some. Yeah, well, we've got the rye. Well, let's, let's cheers this and then we'll do the rye on the final. All right. All right, yeah. I, had, I already cheers myself. Five, five of six. There as well, yeah. Yeah. Five of six. Strange we drank uh, more of the stronger stuff. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> sound like professionals. Yeah. It seems as though we're drinking equal measures of the things that we're drinking. There we are. All right, so cheers, cheers, uh, cheers, old boy. Pinky's out for the Pinky's queen. Pinky's out for the king. king. 
I've lived long enough that the whole time I lived in Holland, it was the Queen and Queen's Day. Now it's King Willem Alexander, and now it's the first king. I mean, in almost a hundred years, but that dude didn't last very long. He's only the second King Charles. Yep. And isn't it wild to think there'll be another coronation in our lifetime? Absolutely. Yeah. And I will Probably still, within a decade or two. I will still stare at my TV with the same bewilderment. Uh, it is just a very literally and figuratively foreign concept to me. It is. <laughs> like it is I, I mean, the, it's just purely for tourism, yep. right? If you did a business mm. plan, you wrote down, okay, the royals cost you this, and they bring in this. I think it would be, you'd be slightly in the black. <laughs> right? I, yeah. With the merch and the travel and the, you know, the... I agree. All the tours, then going to the museums and like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I get it. Uh, all right. So, hearkening to the fact that we are all aggressive orators, if you will, to use one of Charles's terms, um, okay. we all have careers that are built on telling a, a, a story. Mm-hmm. And that can literally be telling a story or it can be telling the story of, of a product did you feel like you were always suited for that coming up from youth? Or was that, was that something that you had to get used to? And if so, how has that changed to where you're at in your life now? Uh, yeah, it's actually my mother's fault because she made me go to church. Right? Sorry, Mom. <laughs> She's dead now, obviously. Not obviously. But she is dead. <laughs> and now it's obvious. <laughs> if you didn't know, Mom. So back to, to Ted Kissins. Mom's no. listening to the podcast. No, so I grew up in a tiny... Uh, uh, town, but even within the town, um, we were Protestants. Now, demographically, in when I was growing up in the 1970s, there were more Jews in Ireland than Protestants, yeah. and there weren't a lot of Jews. A tiny percentage of Protestants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a massive, almost cathedral-sized Roman Catholic church, uh, I say downtown, I mean on the main street. And we had this tiny, you know, 200-person church of ours. And it was a very small community. There are duffs on the parish register going back hundreds of years, so I couldn't duck out of this even if I wanted to. And there was, it was cold, and there was no amplification, and everyone had to take turns to read the lesson, right? Mm. There's two lesson readings from each thing. It didn't matter. You all had to do it, and the parents made the kids do it too. So um, the first time I walked up the, uh, the aisle and I sat there and I, I stood there at the lectern and I had to read from the book... <laughs> Um, I was a little taller than other kids from my age, so maybe that's one reason it wasn't intimidating. But I really had the feeling, you know, when I said dearly beloved, I was thinking of Prince yes. yeah. more yes. than the Prince of Peace. Even just connecting <laughs> those two words to anyone in this country. Right? Yep. Yeah, it's particularly, uh, you know, apposite here in Minneapolis. But, um, you know, and I had to do that every, you know, week or two, and I got really comfortable, and I'd, like, perform Right? Mm. And, and, and at one stage, God bless him, the parish priest said to my mother, it's like, do you think, has Phil, would you consider Philip for the priesthood? And my mom, who knew me very well, was like, yeah, I, I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> I was 12, by the way. <laughs> right? And even then, my mother knew <laughs> the Catholic Church is going to get her, or the Protestant Church is going to get along. She'll she knew what she'd made. Without me. Well, but, you're at the lectern uh, denoting the history of Geneva. Gen- yeah, so. yeah, the religious, the religious <laughs> history of uh, of Juniper Berries. Yeah, so what it was, uh, I, was a pre- I, w- I was a pretty good student. I can read extremely fast, and I read constantly. I have to have something to read in the toilet. I'll read, like, the toothpaste ingredients. Uh, and I can retain it really well. Uh, so that was good in school. And married to a sort of skill in public speaking that I didn't consciously acquire, 
it meant that I did more of that. Like, I'd talk in front of the class, or we'd debate, or, you know, stuff like that. I got very into science, biology, uh, physics, chemistry, even home economics. And then uh, I graduated high school a year too young, and I kind of had to take a year off before they'd actually let me into college. So I was a motorcycle courier and a customs clearance agent. And then when I went back, I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. I did a degree in marketing. And marketing brought it all together. Sure. You've got the talking, uh, the thinking, some degree of analytical mind. Like, I'm still reasonably good at maths and, and stuff like that, read a spreadsheet, all that sort of thing. And at the same time... Parallel history, much like rye whiskey in Geneva, uh, I had been bartending from the ripe old age of 15. Mm -hmm. So when I put those together, it is what led me to where I am today. So I bartended all around the world, and I was doing, I was like training bartenders from the age of 20, right? You know, manuals, spec sheets, tests, uh, food preparation, safety, the whole thing. And when I became a consultant, it was just more of that. And as a consultant, it dawned on me that my clients were people who had the same marketing degree as me, but had actually gone into marketing. So I could speak their language and also the language of their target market, which was bars. So it kind of all came together. I would love to say it was planned. And to any young people listening who'd like career advice from dear old Uncle Phil, um, become a good public speaker, learn a language, and whether formally or informally, even if it just means reading Marketing for Dummies, Study marketing, because if you don't study it, you will be its target. No matter what you want to do, if you want to be a plumber or a doctor or a professional juggler, um, this must be the base of your education. You only need to be, I'm a big fan of what's called a talent stack. The idea that you've got to be a genius uh, is is ridiculous, right? You've just got to be a little better than other people in a wide range of things, You've got to be a little better at writing, a little better at public speaking, have a little better handle on marketing. And the language thing is not because speaking Norwegian or Dutch will ever help you, right? It's so that you get used to uh, communicating when you're at a disadvantage. Literally, I don't know if I've ever felt more seen by anything a guest has ever said on the show. That's, uh, yes, just yes. Poetry, jam, snaps, and all that shit. I, I always say that everything, every vocation, everything you do professionally, everything is sales and marketing. Like, no role is not marketing and no role is not sales. And if you're lost in either of those corridors, then you can't find a door to open. Uh, to and sell is to serve and to serve is to sell. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Charles, where do you land on that? Yeah, in regard to storytelling, I feel like I've always excelled at storytelling and I've done well at public speaking and uh, I, I had public speaking engage, engagements at probably younger ages than I had any business having public speaking engagements. Uh, I started my business at age 26, Patmos Design and Identity, 15 years old this year. I think that in regard to the maturation of being a storyteller and extolling stories and virtues and lessons and sellability and marketability to people. What I've learned over the years, and it's something you never stop learning. It's not that I didn't understand it from uh, the outset, but it's something that I continued to learn. And I feel I, I have a great grasp on today, but I will continue to understand better. It's know your audience 
So regardless of what it is that you're selling or marketing or who you're speaking to or who your audience is for the story that you're telling, the same story can be told in myriad ways because your audience has to connect with the way that you're portraying the story. It's not just language. It's also phrasing and cadence and um, the way you present yourself, your personality. This podcast is a great example of that. And I feel that throughout our maturation of presenting this podcast, I often have to consider, you know, I, I, I try to approach this in organic and holistically a way as possible the way that I present myself as a person and a personality. But I do also consider when I play back some of our episodes or, or the ways I phrase things, like am I connecting with our target demographic? Do people want that version of me? And it's not as though I am saying that uh, I, I want to make myself into a version of myself that's inauthentic. It's that we're each different versions of ourselves. We each are a hyper-professional version of ourselves, and then the version we are with, for instance, our siblings. And then there's myriad gradations in between each of those values. And knowing your audience is important in dictating where to set the burner in between each of those values. Because if I'm having, if I'm at a professional symposium about the creative arts, I'm going to present myself as that, former notion almost to the the very end of the burner. I'm going to be very well-spoken and uh, imbue very little humor, just a little, but very little humor, and be highly technical. But if it's the other end of the notion where you're amongst friends, you present yourself more in a way uh, that is in line with how we present ourselves on the show, where we're showing you our truest selves, the ways that we interact with people in everyday life. And that's sort of, I think, uh, the magic of, that's the seasoning in the sausage in regard to how the sausage is made here is that people can connect with us because we're being our true selves, our free selves, the, uh, the, that childlike enthusiasm about the things we eat and drink and travel and our lives. So I'd say the lesson I've learned throughout the years is as a storyteller, you have to know your audience and know how to speak to them. And the more adept you are at that, the more your message will get across. And it's something that takes some time to to dial in. I mean, to bring it back to booze, uh, Charles, Ben, do you know the story about Salvatore Calabresi and selling fancy cognac? I do not. It is this story. No? Yeah. So legendary bartender Salvatore Calabresi invented the Duke's Martini, the yep. Spicy 50, the Breakfast Martini, now has the Donovan Bar in Brown's Hotel in London. Great guy, good friend of mine. But um, when he was relatively uh, new in London in charge of a luxury hotel's bar, the Lanesbury Hotel, he convinced the GM to let him buy thousands and thousands of pounds worth of vintage, vintage cognac, some of it pre-phylloxera, very important stuff. And he thought this would be amazing, display it in the bar, yeah. and they'd sell it, you know, three, four hundred pounds for a shot, you know? And he was confident he could sell it. And nobody ordered it. They did their best. It just wasn't working out. And one day, uh, the hotel's very expensive. Like, to give you an idea, Stevie Wonder used to stay there and come down and play the piano <laughs> in the bar. It was that okay. kind of place. Holy right? shit. Kind of expensive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, or maybe it was just expensive. Stevie couldn't see the bill. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, 
one time he got this uh, American guest in and he decided to just talk to the guy because the guy showed a bit of an interest in the cognac collection. But instead of saying, oh, you should have this, you should have that, he said, so what's your deal, man? Like, Salvatore didn't say that. He was like, hey. Um, he, he said, what are your passions? What do you like? What are you interested in? And the guy's like, well, you know, I, am, I adore and my kind of, I'm a history buff. And Salvatore's like, oh, cool, man, what are you into? I goes, um, Thomas Jefferson, greatest American that ever lived, da-da-da, Thomas Jefferson, rah-rah, Thomas Jefferson. And Salvatore said, well, it's funny you mentioned that. I have one cognac here that was distilled in Jefferson's lifetime. <laughs> right? So, obviously, <laughs> obviously, Salvatore made his sale. And that was the key. He said, Philip, as soon as I realized that, that became the thing. You talk to the guests, you find out that thing, you read the room, as it were, mm -hmm. and you uh, find the cognac. And they had, they had more than enough there. And, you know, to this day, it's something that Salvatore is famous for. He's written a brilliant book called uh, Cognac, A Liquid History, a really great history of cognac. Oh, I love but it. it's more of a masterclass in, uh, in reading that room, Charles. And it's something that everybody could learn from. Absolutely. Um, what, which actually kind of leads into my answer. Um, Growing up as an only child, I didn't really, my mom was working all the time, so I didn't really have like anybody to perform for that much. Right. So I didn't, I didn't jump out there. I wrote a lot. Like as soon as I could write, I wrote a lot. I read a lot. Same thing. Like I was doing, I was the kid that would, um, I put the blanket over my head at night and I had a flashlight oh, right. and I would literally read. read until the yeah. batteries ran out on the flashlight and I was, uh, like, uh, Terry Brooks has this fantasy series that was, like, each book was, like, 700 pages. I was doing that fourth and fifth grade. And then I would just write and write and write and write and write. And I loved telling stories, but I was also very anxious when I was very, very young. And then high school hit, and girls. And it was like, oh, well, I, how do I, I have to, I, I wrote a lot of notes, don't get me wrong. I tried to, I definitely tried to Cyrano de Bergerac my way into some women's hearts, but really it was a whole lot more of just being confident and watching some of my friends just walk up to a girl and say, you're very nice. And they'd be like, he talked to me, oh my God. But you were journaling before it was journaling. Absolutely, and I will still attest, I have burned more pages of journals and thrown away more journals than anything I could ever write for the rest of my life. Like I, I would reread it a couple times and then it had to go away. I just had to write it to get out of my head. And to this day, I still treat social media the same way. That's like a, a journal that I just throw things out at. And then however. It's like, imagine if you took a photo of every deadlift or squat in the gym. There's a lot of failures. Yeah, absolutely. To, like I've just, I've just, because uh, I don't use uh, free weights, far too, uh, far too working class. <laughs> I use the machines. Yes, like a gentleman. Give me something cabled, thank you. Yeah, and I've just got up to on the leg press. I've got up to three hundred and forty pounds. That's and amazing. I'm jazz. Yeah, right. I can, I can actually do it with decent form. Yeah, but I got there by a lot of leg presses that didn't make it. And like, you do it, and you're kind of looking around the gym, it's like, I hope no one saw me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's nothing worse than when you get halfway up and then realize that you're not gonna make it. You're not making it. That's, it's brutal. And what I ended up doing was I would save what I thought were the winners. The thing, the pieces that I wrote that I really felt were great. That's cool. Then uh, somebody needed a host for a thing when we were in high school, and I volunteered. And once, literally once I got a reaction from the crowd, it was, I was hooked. 
And it was, it's so funny looking back on it because it definitely didn't mix in my head. I wasn't doing this intentionally, much like you said, but then I got a job as a busboy and I was getting paid $5 and 25 cents an hour, but I could get tipped out if the servers thought I was doing a good job. So I figured out that if you kind of hustled along and you talked to the tables next to you while you were doing stuff and made them have fun, all of a sudden now they're giving more money in and then those people are throwing me some money and now I have enough gas to drive to my friend's party or whatever. So it all, like everything kind of starts stacking. I go to college for political science. I'm going to be a politician. That is the path that my mother laid out for me when I was a child and I was all about it. That's child abuse, man. And then I got to college and I was like, wait, there's so many more things. And I will always uh, credit an ex-girlfriend of mine. Uh, she was older than me and smarter than me and much more mature than me. And we were talking about why we worked. And I'm still friends with her. She is a fantastic uh, dean of a college now. But at the time, she was an English major. And we had this long discussion about how we came at music and writing from different angles. And... She was the one that called it out. She said, you can make complex things simple and relatable. And I responded, and you can make simple and relatable feelings incredibly complex through poetry and all of this uh, incredible prose. And what she, as at the end of that discussion, she said, the problem is that yours is going to make you a lot more money than mine will. And it always sat with me. And that was when I got into bartending. It was just an extension of how do I take something that might seem scary from this wall of incredible booze behind me and make it relatable to you? And as soon as you can start making that connection, that becomes marketing. And I didn't realize that at the time. But as I've gotten older, that was it, is how do I take something that doesn't connect with somebody and draw that connection in to a complete stranger? using words that they for sure don't feel scared of using sure. like bringing them in, like bringing them into the conversation as in like, you should do this because that is good. It's more like a, well, like how do you feel? Like tell me a little bit more about you. And as that's grown, it's been really interesting because it's actually started down reflexively to change my writing where I catch myself going into a little bit more detail to try and hook a reader in because I want you to feel as you're reading this, like you're invested in this. And I love, I hope that's something that never goes away for me because I love trying to figure out how to make those connections. And the minute you walked into this room, I felt like you understood that. Something that I've loved about Charles since the day that we met was that he understands that. And I think that that ability to break it down to, you know, our ancestors sitting around a fire the people that could tell the stories were usually the people that everybody would follow because they're the ones who have the words. They're the ones who tell you what's going on. And what's so wrong with connecting with people? Nothing. Because you know? some people will phrase it as like dumbing down. That's no. not, or, or like trying to speak above your station, but I want to meet you where you are people is important. And, and, and the flip side is also true. Like if somebody sits down and they want to talk about some really high level, like mixology stuff, let's do that too. But I, I hate, there's nothing, I will take somebody completely ignoring me at a bar for 10 minutes. I'll take that over somebody who looks at me and then decides that they're going to talk down to me. 
because they think that I don't look like I should understand I mean, what's going on. To be fair, on. it is how you dress. It, well, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I something. mean, yeah. You both said really interesting things. And before I forget it, and also before we talk about rye whiskey, there's four really cool things that I think that have come up here. One, in the 1920s, the Nobel Prize winning uh, New Zealand scientist, Ernest Rutherford, who I, uh, was based in the UK at the time, had a great saying. He said, if you can't explain your science to an eight-year-old child, yeah. uh, you don't understand it. And okay. yes. on the flip side, kind of that, kind of that a little bit as well, Albert Einstein said you should make everything as simple as possible, but not simpler. Some things are what they are, right? There's a reason why there's no Ladybird book of organic chemistry, <laughs> right? The third leg of the four-legged stool, I think, is probably, in terms of, like, oh, where are you at? There's a... People... By all means, go in their direction. But they have to come out of the shell a little bit. Like if someone rolls into the bar, it's all happened. They're like, I don't like tequila. When I was young, I was like, well, I'm going to show you. And these days, I'm like, cool, man, what do you like? Do you like sherry? Yes, like, yes. Like, I mean, because after you've had a few rounds, I might say, hey, you want a sherry tequila cocktail? I don't know. Um, it's the classic. We don't have minors in Ireland in college degrees uh, or fees. But if I had a minor, it would have been a market research. And I didn't even learn it then. But it's the thing that Henry Ford said, which is if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. Sure. Right? And then the last thing is if you do do a marketing degree, and I know you'll, uh, at least I hope you will, sympathize, uh, Charles, the first few months are spent arguing about what marketing is, and nobody has come to a good definition, not even the guy who invented it, Peter Drucker. But one yeah. of the most succinct explanations I've ever heard is selling products that don't come back to people that do, Ooh, which I think is brilliant. I love that. I've never heard that sentence before, and that is fantastic. Marketeers would argue that that's a commercial proposition, but uh, it does add up a lot of things because... A lot of people look down on sales. I think it's all Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Yep. But selling is serving and serving is selling. And you're, if you have a good product and it's well-priced and in the market, like, I don't know, it's Old Duff Geneva, um, you are helping people by putting it out there. Now, if it's, if it's too cheap or too expensive, the quality, of the day, sure, fine. But if you have an objectively good product, you are solving problems for people. Mm -hmm. and that's product, product, service, marketing, and creative. Those are the three legs. And then bringing it to the person in that direct sales, which is something that I've done so much of, is that is all of the things that I learned about hospitality working in restaurants have been the things that have allowed me to get better at that because it's making those connections. Well, you get direct feedback. Yep. Right? You can look at the food that you bust off the table, mm -hmm. and if they haven't eaten the special, mm -hmm. if four tables haven't finished the special... Right, yeah. or if they're not finishing your olive, your olive oil espresso martini. <laughs> but hey, we all got a bit of whiskey in front of us, yeah. shall we? Let's do it. All right, so we've kind of gone from 1497 with Old Geneva up to 1900. And we kind of have to go back on a parallel sliding doors timeline here, back to 1614, right? We're going to explain the long-lost cousin of Geneva and uh, Dutch Geneva and English gin, which is rye whiskey. So most of this is about timing and demographics. So the Dutch formally rolled into America in 1614. They established the colony of New Netherland, which stretched from Rhode Island all the way south into Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and encompassed modern-day New York City. Mm -hmm. 
right? In 1640, they built America's first distillery on Staten Island. Now, nobody knows. There's no documentation that survived what they made, but it was almost certainly they were trying to make Geneva. Uh, the Dutch and the Germans were rye distillers, and rye grew here. And rye is very hardy and difficult to work with, but if you know how to work with, it's amazing. They migrated, the Dutch and the Germans, down the eastern seaboard, and they settled lots of them between uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia and the Allegheny Mountains along yep. the Monongahela River. Now, in the early 1700s, the Scots rocked up because they were being evicted from their tenant farms all across the highlands of Scotland by their evil landlords and lairds who wanted to raise sheep instead, which is more profitable. This was the theme of Braveheart, and also the uh, spin-off of the recent TV series uh, Yellowstone, 1923, yep. Yep. right, for the highbrow listeners to this show. Um, now, the Scots distilled barley because they'd learned it from the originators of whiskey, their neighbours, my people, the Irish. And the Scots distilled barley, but then they started distilling corn, which is more prevalent here. Mm-hmm. The Irish didn't show up till the mid-1800s, but when they showed up, they showed up in <laughs> boatloads. And the reason was a uh, brutal famine, yep. which was essentially economically engineered, kicked off in Ireland in 1845. Within a dozen years, the population of Ireland had plummeted from 8 million to 2 million. 6 million gone. Not all dead. Many of them emigrated. Uh, and many of them came here. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to say is the Germans and the Dutch had almost a 100-year head start on this. When the Scots and later the Irish started making whiskey, which is from the Irish word iskaba, it did become very popular. And the the Dutch and the Germans changed the name of what they were making. They were making essentially Geneva. And as the years went by, as 1700 turned into 1800, they began putting it in barrels, not just for transport, but for age. They used to call it Korntram, literally rye dram. And then... Because uh, German was a very important language in the early years of America. It almost mm-hmm. became one of the official languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they said, fuck it, can't fight the tide. And they began calling it whiskey. And that's where rye whiskey came from. And rye was America's first whiskey, its biggest whiskey. It was massive. It's the original Manhattan ingredient. Um, George Washington was a mega rye distiller. Mm-hmm. He had the capacity to make 120 liters a day, which is quite a lot back then. Yeah. Also very high quality. And the Mount Vernon distillery has been restored by the late uh, Dave Pickerel, and it makes whiskey every year, and you can get it, and all this kind of thing. And rye whiskey uh, was killed off by Prohibition. Right, and after Prohibition, people had sweeter tastes. They came back, they drank bourbon. So what we're going to have is, from the renowned Luxrow distillers, it is Ezra Brooks, mm-hmm. and it's probably as close as you could get to a pre-Prohibition rye whiskey. It's only two years old. Whiskey was not aged for very long back then. It's 51% rye, 45% uh, corn, and 4% barley. Mm-hmm. The barley's the starter. It's also 99 proof. 49.5. So this is, it has a, you know, quite a lot of elegance and refinement, but this is as close as you get to the whiskey that built America. The old stories where like the cowboy, dusty cowboy, you know, trots up on his horse, ties it, goes inside, sits down at the bar, and he says, Miss Lily, whiskey. And he gets like a bottle and he bites the cork off and, and drinks it. And he goes, <laughs> that was rye. That was rye whiskey. 
Jews. So the, the wild colonial cousin that disappeared to the faraway land. Sounds about right for right? us. And that's, that's what this is. And this is history that was only recently uncovered and verified by historians like the esteemed uh, Dr. David Wondrich. And it has even led to the rejuvenation, the recreation uh, of stills that haven't been used in America for 100 years either. Okay. Leopold Brothers yep. uh, saw the plans Absolutely. for three chamber stills. And they commissioned the first one in probably 100 years. It was built by Vendome down in uh, Kentucky, I think it is. And hilariously, Vendome said, look, we're really confident of this and we're delighted to have the opportunity. However, we can't certify this for you. So good luck. (laughs) Fortunately, it hasn't exploded yet. And you can drink Leopold Brothers uh, Three Chambers Still Rye and even an excellent collaboration between them and Nicole Austin's superb Dickel Whiskey, which is actually... Uh, three chamber Leopold Brothers Rye blended with Dickel whiskey. And I've had it, and I'm here to tell you yeah. it would make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read an article about the creation of that, and I was fascinated. Everything that the Leopold Brothers have put out, I'm, I'm a fan of. I have yet to have anything that's a miss from them. And then you add in Dickel, who just put out their Bottled and Bond series, or it just made it to Minnesota, I should say. Number three, uh, third round. Absolutely spectacular. And to have those two coming together is absolutely amazing. But this is wonderful. I will always love the aggressive rye mixed with that beautiful, yeah. rich sweetness. It, it, to me, I'm a, this I'm is a just, rye guy, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see that when you find that people don't have a proclivity for that. Like, the spice is not, to me anyways, on my The spice palate, is nice. Not, yeah, it's not significant to a degree that it would... Me off I, I think, Charles, you have to take them there because I saw it happening in Europe. You yeah. have to take them there with the Manhattan. Yep. We all made Manhattans. We could only really get um, Jim Beam, which is fine. It's the for, the it, yellow sure. label rye or the white, white label? label. Okay. White, no, no, no. Yeah. We could only get white label okay. Jim Beam bourbon. And then a little yeah. later, we started getting wild turkey bourbon, which is a high rye bourbon. Mm-hmm. And we were yeah. like, awesome. But, you know, it took a lot longer. Hey, here's a number for you guys, right, for all the drinks industry nerds. I, w- I was kind of shocked when I heard this. So uh, the number one rye in America is Bullet Rye, which they commissioned from MGP, right? And MGP make fine whiskey, so it's no surprise. But here's the thing. It's 450,000 cases. That's not the statistic that will make your jaw drop. The number two rye in America, is wild turkey rye, selling 50,000 cases. Bullet is nine times bigger than its nearest competitor. That's fucking insane. Wild, right? Would would you not say it's also a matter of broad availability? Hell yeah. It's like so so readily available. And great pricing. Diageo. I mean, bullet rye, uh, sorry, wild turkey rye is great too, but like they, Diageo have an army. And look, the rye is new on the scene, man. They have captured it. You can't deny the liquid quality. Would you, okay, to, to put marketing brains on, so uh, at the Whiskey Museum in Dublin, ended up sitting and chatting with one of the guys that worked there for a while, and we were going back and forth about 
he was asking me questions about like which how is Irish whiskey viewed in the middle of North America versus you know what they're seeing there. We got into this discussion and he was telling a story and I don't know the veracity of it, but that basically when Pernod Ricard came in and started investing in Irish whiskeys and wanted to bring the worldwide, that they were sort of indifferent on which brand they wanted to push and they decided on Jameson because people thought Ireland was green and it had a green bottle and they just went with it that way. And now you have that everywhere because it had that money behind it. It almost like not, I'm not besmirching Jameson. I've drank enough that I probably have multiple rings in my liver. If you cut it across like a tree trunk, uh, uh that are just that are Jameson green planning on it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but never mind. Sorry. that said, like, I mean, it, is that maybe just a similar case where it was just the first one that a giant company invested in and really started pushing? Cause I've, I, I, I remember when Bullet came out, and there's been lots of speed bumps with that, with uh, Hollis Bullet's allegations towards Diageo and towards her father and all that kind of stuff. There's, it's not, not problematic. But before that, she was the brand ambassador, and it was going everywhere. But it was also the first time that anybody had walked into my bar and tried to tell me that rye whiskey is something that we needed to really invest in quality of, not just have a rye or two that weren't Canadian. Well, Ben, I mean, Bullet, you're right paved the way. Great whiskey, great damn price, and different. Just, you know, not Jim Beam, yep. big people behind it. So the rye came along, and everyone's like, oh, cool, there's a rye. You know, cool, there's a rye. But to go back to your story, it's actually pretty interesting. So the Irish whiskey industry was on its knees. I mean, it was, it was dead. Irish whiskey was, was extinct. It was running on fumes. <laughs> Worse than Geneva. Um, so much so, the Irish distillers were forced to do something against their very nature that they resented with all their heart and soul, which is actually work together. <laughs> so they all got rid of their distilleries, and they all came together and built the most advanced distillery in the world at the time in the 1970s, the Middleton Distillery yep. in County Cork. And then um, Irish Distillers Limited was bought from Seagram's by Pernod because Seagram's imploded. And Pernod came in with a great deal of luxury spirits creation experience with cognac. And they, they looked at it and like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick one of the big brands and we're, there's no other way to say it. We're going to dumb it down. We're going to put it in every speed rail. Everyone will drink it. It'll be like mm. Jack Daniels. People will drink the brand. They won't know they're drinking Irish whiskey. The same way Jack Daniels drinkers don't know they're drinking Tennessee whiskey. We'll take that money and we will build vast rick houses and we'll bring back single pot still whiskey and all that kind of thing. And I know people who were on a press trip to uh, Middleton almost 30 years ago. It's like a murderer's row. There was Dale DeGroff. There was <laughs> Dave Wondrich. There was Paul Picoult. Holy and, shit. Oh, yeah. So this... To this, be on that bus. The roadmap was written. Yeah. And they have done it all. But here's the other thing. Irish Distillers actually created a podcast uh, a year or two ago. Um, it was a dramatized podcast with, like, voice actors. <laughs> quite yes. Really, okay. I am here for this smoke. It is based on facts. Um, the brands actually themselves lobbied to be dumbed down, right? Because they wanted to... It would also be like kind of a bit of status and power within the whole group. Sure. Because they, they had never worked before. and They didn't mm. know how to work together. So they were still kind of competitive. And it came down to Jameson's, which is a, you know, a beloved high-quality Irish whiskey, yeah. not the brand it is today. And Powers, which yep. is sure. the most beloved... Irish whiskey, that's pound my, for pound. That's my Irish and, whiskey. And Jameson, all of our Irish whiskey. And Jameson nosed it out. Yep. And, it, and it became Jameson. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Jameson now is not what Jameson was, but Jameson is everywhere. Right. And it has bankrolled 
the return of Middleton and Redbreast yep. and Greenspot mm-hmm. and Redspot. And, yeah, and that, sure. in turn, uh, it gives a little tiny bit of opportunity for all the other 49 distilleries in Ireland that are now making... Uh, great, yeah. you know, single pot still whiskey. So, but yeah, no, it came down to they were actually jockeying to be about the greenness. It's also very funny. Uh, nobody associated um, Ireland and leprechauns with greenness until the movie Darby O'Gill and the Little People. There is <laughs> oh, shit. an excellent leprechaun museum in Dublin. Yeah. There's only one. It's not like there's a shitty one as well. <laughs> but there's an excellent leprechaun museum. Okay, so it's the best and the it's worst. It's the best leprechaun and museum. And the worst. And they have a whole thing about this. <laughs> they come over to do Darby O'Gill and Little People. There was a mania for Ireland. There was Maureen O'Hara and those actors with Irish history. Like, you know, great. You know, John Wayne, The Quiet Man. All this is happening. And they come over to film it and they chose green. Oh, Ireland's green. So all the leprechauns are green. Now, all the previous depictions in Ireland of leprechauns was, is them wearing kind of brown, like sort of blend in and stuff like that. Yeah, actual clothes. Yeah, and then it was on like the <laughs> Cheerios box and shit like yep. that. So it's because of America that leprechauns and the greenness <laughs> thing. And Irish people are like, sure, fine, whatever. Where are they like, sourcing you know, these, fa- that these sounds, fabrics from? That sounds so American, though. We apply yeah. a thing to it, and then we use that as the thing to market it. That's it. Everything else. Yeah. Like, well, Sa- Santa Claus is red yep. because of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Santa Claus used to be green. Yep. But so, yeah. where is he sourcing that fabric? God. Mm. Oh, that's just wild. Reindeer but, blood. But that's the answer. <laughs> Rain, all the dead reindeers, <laughs> and it's got to be fresh, so it's red because it'll dry brown. Rudolph. But that's like it, it's funny because when you brought up the bullet thing, I really don't remember any any distributor pushing rye at me for any reason until Bullet took off, and then every portfolio from every distributor had this fancy new rye that they want to show off, and I loved it because they were usually a little bit higher proof, and, and it gave us gave up too. What's that? And then a bunch of them kind of... Of course. But it gave us... It, 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 from the bartender side, from the mixologist side, this was right when Craft Cocktail Wave 1.0 was really taking off. It gave us so many more tools to play with. And I feel like every time there's a resurgence of a spirit that we've loved collectively as humans, it gives everybody new, new colors to paint with. And every time we reintroduce things that we've already known... It also, when you can have the history and then you can have the, the modern creativity and the access that we have to, at this point, every ingredient on the planet, if you want it bad enough, you can kind of get it. To have the, the, the sort of the, the, the mixology, for lack of a better term, the stirred cocktail of access and love of history together, I think that that's how we move forward competitively. That's how we do it coherently we have the stories of the past and the spirits of the past as we move into trying to do new things and i i just i love that we're continuing to push because in my mind there's always something like well i guess this is kind of like now we have everything now where do we go but we'll never have everything we keep finding different things we keep digging farther yeah, in the past right we keep looking at, at at cultures that have been marginalized or excluded from everything yes. and you have new spirits coming out and new cultures coming out oftentimes we're developing new things when we could just as well refer to the past yeah like jennifer for instance right the relative uh low probability of knowledge regarding what that even is and people perhaps looking for things that are like it but they're looking for something new as opposed to looking back 
mm-hmm. something that's been here all along. Something to be said for that. Absolutely. Well, they're looking for stories and authenticity, but just sure. to bring it back to brutal, grimy commercialism for a while, what I think was probably happening, and it'd be interesting to go back and look at the timeline on bullets out, bullets killing it. It was around for a long time before Diageo bought Yep. Uh, bourbon, I mean. And there was a movement building with rye. And it was largely driven by the Michter's company in New York, who were friends of mine. Shout out to yeah. Joe and Matt Magliocco and Chatham Imports. They make great and they built Spectacular, l- right? Spectacular. And they built a love in the kind of high, you know, whiskey circles in general. Yeah. And, you know, and wild turkey rye was kind of always out there, but fine. So the cocktail thing got going, cocktail 1.0. And uh, everyone kind of rediscovers rye. And they're like, oh, my God, Michter's. Oh, my God, this. Oh, my God, that. But then Bullet nips in, and it's like, we're well-priced. So people are like, okay, mm-hmm. cool. We'll put Bullet in the well the same way you, you could now put Ezra, definitely put Ezra, in the, in the well. And we'll have Michter's as the upsell. And that's kind of the dream of a marketer, a liquor marketer, an entrepreneur like me. What I want, as somebody who owns a Geneva, is when a bartender... Uh, becomes a bar owner and opens his first bar or the manager writes the first order shift. Mm. I just want them to have a line on the opening spreadsheet for Geneva. I mean, I really hope it's mine. Yep. Right? And if there's two lines, so they're like, well, we're going to have two. We're going to have a well and an upsell. It's like, oh, my God. Because then there's never going to be a debate about having Geneva at all. If there's only one line, yeah. it's always like, eh, should we carry it? Like, that's the dream. And totally. I suspect, and this is just because I've had like 12 ounces of booze, um, but I suspect that might be part of the success I, of I Bullet think... Ride, that they were there. And also, again, I get asked to make spirits a lot, and I do it because that pays the bills. And very often people say, I, just don't, I, I don't want to just like get some juice. People not in the business love saying juice. Yeah. I don't want to get some juice from MGP. I'm like, <laughs> dude, that is some of the best juice that you can get. Consistent and available. Yep. And yeah, especially available. in terms of rye. Yeah. All I will say is don't lie to me about the story. If you're if sure. if it's MGP, yeah. cool. Don't tell me that you handmade this yourself. Past that, we're good. We've had one brand that got crucified for that, and it was very beautiful to watch it go down. But for me, good is good. Like just get mm-hmm. something good. And I would much rather have you tell the story of what you're trying to do with MGP than putting out some bullshit, poorly made very, very young whiskey and then telling me that that's worth $60 because you made it with your hands. Yeah. It's not good. And just a rung below the notion that everything is sales and everything is marketing is that everything is stonks too. Yep. You know, you need to be able to uh, determine futures and being at the doorstep when rye was ready and ripe was critical mm-hmm. to the success of that brand. Yep. And it's something that I... It's like one of my hallmarks, in fact, with the consultation that I do with my clients is that I like to understand what people don't want anymore, what they do want right now, and what they will want tomorrow. Because mm-hmm. it's incredibly important to understand what people want next. Oh. Yep. That's, that's hypercritical. And, you know, it's, we see it uh, manifest in myriad ways. Like, I've done it with... Hazy IPAs, I've done it with barrel-age programs, I've done it with adjunct stouts, I've done it with Detroit-style pizza, mm-hmm. I've done it with loggers. But being able to indicate... As, as in working with wood, correct? Loggers? All of those things, working with woods. 
What? <laughs> loggers. Sorry. Loggers. Never mind. Oak age loggers? No, that was like a Paul Bunyan joke. Anyway. Oh. Well, expound on that. What do you mean? What? L O G G E R. I just like the idea that you were working with flannel laden. I'm glad I made you explain loggers. that because there's probably people listening being like, the fuck? Or everybody's just yelling Paul Bunyan at their stereo. Everyone's Either way. yelling. But yeah, people are in their cars yelling, Paul Bunyan! Babe the Blue Ox, goddammit! Oh man! Also, yeah, fuck you, Maine, for trying to steal that. But anyway, <laughs> again, <laughs> I'm Sorry, still man. I'm holding on hey, to my if, my anger. If you're a listener in Maine, we love you. But Paul Bunyan's ours, okay? Yep. Just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's ours. I I really love. I, I I truly for all of the things that I've learned over all of my years in bars and all mm. of my years in cocktails, I love this through line from. Genevere up to rye whiskey like that is that is a bow that I did not expect to be tied today even when when we were texting about it yeah like that yeah. is that is once again reminding us that there uh this world as vast and and expansive as it is is so small and there are so many things that are related uh the older I get I think that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned so far is that there's a good chance that anything that you like is related to something else that you either like or dislike. And you should just dig a little bit further. Even in regard geographically to like all foods and flavors and spices yep. and grains and, you know, the way that breads are baked and meats are prepared. The numbers that we use. We were talking about that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's roll right into our final topic of conversation. That works. I've got like, I, th I think probably... 20 or 30 minutes. Let's then, go. We'll ride this United's, right into the caption. Uh, I'm going to have to rye up here. Yeah, Perfection. United rye waits up. for no man. Okay, so you were the Academy Chair for the U.S. for World's 50 Best Bars. I was. I feel bad. I've got to give some of this to you, buddy. Here, help me out here. Sorry, go ahead, Charles. It is, it's known to listeners. I subscribe to World's 50 Best as much as I do Michelin Guide. Those are things that I subscribe pretty tightly to. People often ask me, how reliable can that possibly be? What is your philosophy on this? And what is your favorite way to find uh, new places to eat or drink when you're in a new city? Great. So listen, uh, you get what you pay for, right? And nobody pays for the Michelin Guide or the World's 50 Best Guide or, or the Tells the Cocktail Awards, right? And uh, Michelin is the only one that is uh, subsidized mm -hmm. by the sales of car tires, right? And apparently it's been... Um, uh, losing money since it was initiated in the right. 1920s, right? So there is a higher degree of credibility there, but still criticisms, right? I judge uh, quite a lot of contests and uh, had judged, had been a judge for 50 best. One of the, the, there's a small group of people, usually you're limited to a country, but um, in the past it was a small group of people who actually judged internationally because we traveled so much. And for a year or two, I managed all the judges in the USA. Um, the short version is the judges um, are not being paid in all of these. I don't want to single sure. out any yeah. anyone. And I have a saying that if you don't pay people, they'll find a way to pay themselves. Mm -hmm. Right? And that circles back to another thing. Like, okay, you're not paying the judges. Um, how do you select the judges? Now, in some cases... Uh, they, you know, they kind of hint heavily they want to be judges. Sometimes they flat out ask and stuff like that. And that could be seen as being a bit like politics. Anybody yeah. who wants to be a politician should not be allowed to, right? But we live in a big world and you have to do, 
you have to deal, you have to cut your cloth to suit your measure. Jordan, yep. fuck that thing, yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> one development now is that you're seeing lots of regions. Like, it used to be America, right? But now, much like food awards, like, you know, James Beard or whatever, there's America Midwest, America West, America South, America, and you've got just your, New York City. Yeah, yeah. Bushwick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bushwick East. <laughs> um, Bushwick East is a new hotspot. Let's go. Yeah, let's do it. Um, and you, if what happens then is, if you put judges in a region, you pick judges from a region, and you're like, you're the South Central judge. Well, they're going to nominate bars, and they're going to select them. And it's going to be the bars in their region. Mm -hmm. Of course it is. And they're going to know those bars. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have preferences on those bars. Yep. So how many judges do you have? Because the more judges you have, hopefully, the more uh, objectivity you move towards. True. Right? Because they don't all know each other. And if somebody really likes this place because uh, their sister's nephew works there, somebody really hates that place because the guy carded her when she was 19, like, it should all uh, work out. And I think with a numbered list, like 50 best, the biggest problem, they could solve... 80% of the criticisms overnight by just removing the numbers mm -hmm. and listing the bar as alphabetic. Yeah, mm -hmm. Because nobody... Okay, I do have occasional criticism, like, that bar should not be on that list. Right? Sure. There are, like, for yeah. instance, on the Michelin three-star list, for years and years and years, I think still, right, the restaurant of Paul Bocuse in Lyon was mm -hmm. there. He is a, you know, Dale DeGroff times 10, a god mm -hmm. of cooking. But the restaurant for decades and decades, was on the decline. The food was not one star. But it just kept getting the three-star. The three-star heritage is kind of a thing. It's very, very rare that you will lose a star, particularly if you are three stars. You are significantly, by a degree of probably thousands of percentages, more likely to lose your one singular star than you ever are to shed a single star if you're a three-star. Yeah. It's very, very rare. Yeah. Uh, so, to go back to the whole awards, bar lists, etc. Um, not everybody goes to all the regions. Uh, with the best will in the world, somebody in a more rural area, a judge in a more rural area of uh, America, I'm just going to say, it's not going to be as experienced or knowledgeable mm -hmm. as somebody who lives and works in London. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, but overall, the number of judges should make it work out, Yep. right? The question then becomes, how do you even get on the radar of these people? And this has become like a cottage industry now. I've been asked to give seminars, and I have given seminars on what to do, and I'm just basically like, there's no secrets, guys. Make a lot of noise, do the guest bartending thing. Like, you can't do it with no budget anymore. Yep. You need mm. PR agencies and brands and Marketing. all that, and it's work. Like, you need to have a fully staffed restaurant, you and then you're visible. Yeah, your executive head bartender is never going to be there. He yep. or she is going to be constantly doing this thing. Because if you get, even if you get up, you know, if you get into the 100 list, yep. this, is, yeah. this can be life-changing, especially outside a big city, Absolutely. especially outside a big uh a big country. So you become the traveling salesperson, the marketing agent for your home restaurant while exactly. also being on. Yeah. And then even, even 50 Next, like just to be on the radar at all. Yep. Yeah. 
mean, you've got to bear in mind, we've now got North America's 50 best, Asia's 50 best, the overall 50 best, and Europe's coming. So you're going to have, and the list is 100 long, so you're going to have 400 there, um, similar for Tales of the Cocktail, yep. and various other awards as well. So pretty soon you should get an award for not being on a list, right? Um, OAD and Beard and Michelin, there's like, yeah. There's yeah, so many. exactly. And you know what it is? I'll take it right down, right the way down, Occasionally, I even use Yelp to find somewhere totally. if I'm traveling. And I look at a 50 best list. I've been to a lot of the top places. Um, often they know me, sometimes they don't. I have had amazing experiences. I have had horrendous experiences, right? Uh, there are some people who just get consumed by chasing the number and they forget what they do. Eat and it's your eyes a, first. Yeah, it's a weird thing. You can, if you get to the stage where you're famous enough, you're on the list, your bar is busy all the time. Um, it's probably a fancy cocktail bar, and they have a limit to how much money they can make. Yep. But you will then uh, start getting consultancy gigs mm -hmm. and advising, and you'll get a, a syrup brand and a liquor brand and a clothing brand. Well, you become a brand. You become a brand yourself. Yep. You get a book deal, yep. you know? So it's just all happened very quickly for us. And I don't begrudge anybody who works their arse off. Uh, I have great sympathy for all the judges and especially the academy chairs who have to try and keep it honest. Yep. And mm. there's a finite supply of judges that you could trust to judge with uh, integrity and be very conscious of their biases and take uh, outright steps to counteract them. Like, you know, if you work for... I don't know, Beam Suntory, and one of the best bars in your city is a big account. And the bar that's, like, better is not a big account. It's an account, but it's not a big account. Well, which one are you going to list above the other? Mm -hmm. It doesn't... It, 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 it's not... You're, you're, you're not making a big, you know, uh, sin here. Yep. But the incentives, as we say, are misaligned. So I do like to look at the list... Yeah, so I, you personally, what do you refer to if you're in a city that is new to you or you haven't been to in some time? What is it that you refer to for finding new things to eat or drink? I would look at the list. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd certainly be like, oh, sure. definitely want to go there. Yep. And 50 best? You're talking about 50 best? Yeah, 50 best. Well, sure. the tails list too. That okay. will work. I mean, the overlap is, is quite, quite Michelin? Large. Well, for restaurants uh, outside the U.S., the irony is that the better the Michelin restaurant, the worse the bar. That has improved. <laughs> oh, that's improved a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Significantly. It but really, it's still there. It's, it's still there. The Michelin, in terms of bars, would not be my thing. For restaurants, absolutely. Yeah, for I, either, either of those propositions. Yeah, no, Michelin would be my restaurant reference. I'm not that mm -hmm. bothered about world's 50 best restaurants. Yep. Nor, yeah. nor am I even cognizant that much of it. And I don't sure, mind, like, sure. to me, many one stars are better than three stars in terms you wanna, of Michelin. You want to hear the, the secret sauce for me is all, I love the, to do the three star experience because it's often historic in nature, right? right. So I want to go to those places, especially if they're longstanding heritage three stars. Because yes, like, for instance, Arzac is not what it once was. Uh -oh. When I was in Spain for my honeymoon uh, four years ago now, that was as a three-star, I had so many restaurants that were better than it. It's just falling off a little bit. It's a, 
doesn't mean it's not good. It just means that it's held to a lofty standard. Two-star or newly minted three-star, but two-star. Two-star is, that's where it's at. On the way up. Two-star restaurants, they're like holding tight to that. They have their arms against each. They're like Spider-Man with the fucking train, you know, like they're holding the two trains together. Two-stars are the ones that are working diligently and want to effort for the three and to not lose a star. For instance, in Chicago, Smith, S-M-Y-T-H in Chicago, for my money, is the best restaurant in Chicago. And second to that would be Oriole, and they're two stars. And I like them both more than Alinea. Yeah. And Alinea is the only three star. So it's interesting because you kind of start to define those values for yourself after time. Yeah, I mean, look at the Dead Rabbit. It was the number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm you know, deeply involved, friends, all that kind of thing. They are way better here now than they have ever been. Bean, they've got extra space. Like, they have never been operating at the level they are here. The food is better. The drinks are better. Like, it's stratospheric. And, you know, they're, I don't know, they're like number 36. They dropped no. off the 50 list a few times, which is insane. Because mm. there's also, you know, people get fatigued. They, That's it. They want to vote for different the things. The next new thing. Who? Yep. It's like in marketing, bring it yep. back to marketing. The biggest problem with liquor marketers is they get a brand management job and immediately want to change the bottle because it's just something to do. It takes a lot of balls to not fuck with a good thing because you've got nothing to tell your sure, boss. Sure. It's like, hey, what you do this week? I just, I just kept it the same. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> For real. 100%. Yeah, Everybody absolutely. wants to put their mark on stuff, but so, God, that's how um, we ruin a lot of things. What do you, what do you look for? So, I mean, I know it varies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my answer really quick because uh, I, I probably interact the least out of the three of us with said things. Sure. Uh, I treat the, the, the 50 best. I treat Michelin. I treat all that the same way I do music reviews for the, the art that I take the most seriously. There are certain critics that I, for whatever reason, we speak the same language. And if they say something is spectacular, I will go because they say it's spectacular. Because their tastes are similar to mine, and we've proven it over multiple visits of different places that we both agree on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will consult at the end of every year. I spend a week combing through probably 50 to 100 top albums of the year lists and reading about them because there's a lot of things that somebody will bring up that I've never heard of or that I didn't have a chance to to know about. Cool. Then maybe I'll figure out if that's a thing that I want to go to. It becomes more of a guidepost to me of like, if I'm looking at this, is there something that I'm not seeing? And if a group of critics get together or a group of a group of industry experts get together and put a flag somewhere and they're like, this is, we all agree. This is pretty awesome. Okay. I'm, I'm interested in that. Absolutely. I, I don't, we've talked about this a lot of the show. I don't star hunt. I, I, I have found absolutely knee weakening cocktails at shitty dive bars. <laughs> and I've, I've had cocktails that changed my life at amazing bars. I wouldn't have found Imco. Odd and I would not be friends. I wouldn't know Alyssa if it wasn't for the top 50 list and walking in there mm. and then just trying to make conversation with folks yeah. and ended up ending up talking to a random person who turned out to be odd. That also will f- like forever stick with me that it's a great way to jump off. As, and, but I also, I'll use Yelp, TripAdvisor. I'll go on Reddit and just throw out like for a different city. Like, hey, thinking about going here. I'm into this and this and this. What do you guys think? You'll get a bunch of garbage, but every now and then you'll get a couple of great paragraphs 
from some people like, oh, go say hi to Philip at this bar down the street from where you're going. Trust me, you're going to love it. And then you walk in there, rad. Most of the time, I spend more time, if it's just me or if it's me and Jenny, we'll pick one spot that was a flag planted in the ground by people I respect, and then we'll talk to the staff there, and then we'll ask them where we go. Oh, man, and- it's, it's the curse of the three stars. If some list says, oh, it's the best restaurant in the world, best bar, best thing, people come in, even I do, with a bit of an attitude. The expectation. It, ha- it happened to me. I opened Door 74 in um, Amsterdam in 2008. Within a year or two, it was the first Dutch bar in the world's 50 best, when there were only 50. And I think at one stage, it got up to number 15. And we started getting people in, like the very first cocktail tourists. And we're like, we're a nice speakeasy. We're very good. And people are like, oh, is this the world's best bar? When's the music? When do the girls start dancing? <laughs> like, Because that was their conception yeah. of a bar. Sure. And, and yeah. that's a problem. Yep. And most bars that you know suddenly find themselves Where's in the top 10 or the top one, they yeah. get that as well. Sure. So best bar, really? Because a lot of bars, you know, if you go to Paradiso, the number one in Barcelona, it's amazing. The staff are amazing. They're fun. All the cocktails are extremely spectacular. Mm-hmm. They do it all right. It's integrated. Everyone loves it. Well, if you want to have a classic martini, they make a classic martini. You want to have something wild ass, they got it. They got that. Too. Right? And that's their standard thing. If you're a relatively understated bar, right, and you just like milk and honey, nope. a boy. Yep. Or, or whatever. You get a lot of props, but people go in there, I know for a fact, and like, really? Number 25? Yeah, you can't you know? see your hand Where's in front the of your face? You know? Like so that's, that's the curse. So that's yep, why yeah. some people don't play the game or don't worry about it too much. Sure, there's, there's a difference in that regard as well. I mean, when it comes to the way that I observe it and I do follow those lists quite closely, for me, it's a matter of, batting average. I look at it like what is the highest potential batting average for the the situation that I'm in. And I like to see redundancy. I do like to see crossover. Mm-hmm. So if I see something, here's a for, mm-hmm. here's a great for instance. Kwam and I were sitting in my yard smoking a cigar about four evenings ago and the top 50 best had mm-hmm. just come out for uh, restaurants. And Table by Bruno Verjou just received number 10 as a high riser. And when I saw that it had just been announced, I was considering that versus Septime for when I'm in Paris. And I couldn't make the Septime reservation for another 48 hours. And I said, I'm calling it. I'm going to make the reservation at Table by Bruno Verjou because it's a two-star Michelin redundancy. Two-star Michelin and number 10. So I saw that regardless of politics... It's liked in various ways. And then, of course, I have friends who are world travelers who live all over the world, and they often can provide some some intel to me, places that they've been or places that they would like to go. And then, of course, depending on where you are, where those places do not travel, you have Thrillist and Eater and Reddit. Mm-hmm. You can sort of amalgamate all of those things to make a decision. But for me, highest batting average or poss- probability that you're going to have a great experience is Michelin for food. So I'm going to rely on it. Sometimes, yes, it's not exactly where I would place it, but it always has some esteem. I very seldom had an experience at a Michelin-rated restaurant, even like the Gourmand, that I felt, oh, wow, this isn't good at all. Mm -hmm. So I've had a a great deal of success for what I'm looking for with that. 50 best, similarly. Batting average is pretty good. 
the ranking, I would agree. It's quite, it, for me, it's more nebulous. Like sometimes something's ranked at three and I'm like, there, there's something I had that was number 68 that I prefer to this. But again, that can be personal taste. So really for me, it's a matter of just uh, trying to have your best possible uh, likelihood of having a yeah. great experience. So it's not, there's, there is no, there's no 100% sure shot. Consensus helps though. Yeah, there's, but Charles, Ben, you have to roll with the stoic yeah. mentality. Everything in life is great or it's going to be a great story. I've that's literally right. said that on this show before. That is my theory on We're, life. Yeah, that's kind of like, well, we we both, I think, reside in gradients of that, but Quam identifies with the story, the story yep. more than I do, and I identify with the experience with, more than he does. But we, both, but we both love both. Yep, 100%. And it's actually going to be really cool when we're in Copenhagen and we can kind of have this crossover. We'll wrestle it out. I mean, sometimes yeah. when it really goes off the rails, it's like, this is a ama- This is going to be a great story. And you're building the story yep, as sure. it's happening. Like there's a, a place that just <laughs> opened near us. So we've had devastation in New York. Of course. Right? Mm-hmm. And one of the specific things about New York, I don't know what happens in other cities as well. Um, if you own a few buildings and one of them is vacant, you can write off your loss of rent against the profits in the other one. Yeah. So oh, yeah. That's, you're actually, that's an American thing, man. You're incentivized to have empty buildings. Like, one of my favorite local places in the Upper East Side, Parlor Steakhouse, if I would ever open another place, it would have looked like this. Their rent was jacked up from 25 grand a month to 40. I mean, nobody can pay that, right? It's Oof. been empty for five years. So they open this place uh, near me, and it's fancy, and it's Italian, and it's got a nice-looking bar. And me and the wife stop in there about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now. And there's like an older guy bartending and everything's shiny and new. And they've got like all the, you got the right brands. You know, mm-hmm. they got Sietz and Mysterial Smells. Got, it's got that song. Great. So me and the wife are like, hey, can we have a couple of Tanqueray martinis, you know, stirred? About four to one and up, lemon twist. And the guy's like, I got you. And we were like, awesome, man. We've got a new fucking spot here. This doesn't happen on the Upper East Side a lot. No. Right? And I can't help it. I'm kind of watching the guy, and I'm like, was that a bottle of Bianco vermouth? Yeah. I'm like, all right, it's my first time in here. I can't be a dick the first visit. And, like, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. It happens all the time. Yep. Nope. He, like, we get to beautiful-looking martinis, but he's made them with Bianco vermouth. Of course. And we taste it, and I look at Elaine, and I'm like, yeah. And she's like, yep. And I put him down, like, hey, man, I think... Uh, Sorry to be picky. I think he made these with Bianco vermouth. And he's like, oh, did you want the dry? And I'm like, yeah. And he took them away and remade them, and they were perfect. But it wasn't like he'd fucked up. It was like, oh, you're, you're one of those picky people. Like, it was like, wow. dude. Like, especially on the Upper East Side. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people are 900 years old there, and their palates are shot. But those, that's all they drink. Yep. <laughs> right? It's old ladies with little dogs and dry martinis. Holding the little dog while it growls. At so it's everyone. a great story. I was I was writing the story as it happened. So I'm glad yeah. to tell it I on have air. So many of those. I love that. Oh my god, I love that. We got to get you to a plane. I do. United there, Airlines, baby. I cannot thank you so much for. I, I cannot thank you enough for the stories that you've told and how you wove this whole thing together. Yes. Uh, for all of our listeners around the world who want to follow along with your adventures. How do they follow you? How do they follow your brands? What do you want to kind of share with everybody? Excellent. So on every social media platform, it is 
at Old Duff Geneva. That's O-L-D-D-U-F-F-G-E-N-E-V-E-R. For me personally, on the Instagram, it is at Philip S. Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-S for Stephen, D-U-F-F. On Twitter, for the older people and the journalists, it's at Philip Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. And for listeners fortunate enough to be in the greater uh, Twin City regions, you can drink mm-hmm. Old Duff Geneva in fine bars such as Spoon and Stable, Meteor, Mr. Paul's, and Dutch Bar, the great new place in North East. In North East, yeah. Yeah, which is great. You can uh, buy it at you can also drink it in many other bars. You can buy it at fantastic places like Dabbler Depot, Westside Wine, South Lindale Liquor, and the esteemed France 44. Mm. Around the world, you can drink it in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, England, Holland, Israel, North Carolina, New York, Hong <laughs> Kong, and China, and on board the Holland America cruise line ships. And if you happen to be on one of those places or in one of those cities and have a cocktail, please uh, give us a tag or a follow and yeah. feel free to drop me a line if I can ever answer a question for you about Geneva or spirits or life coaching or any of the other things I clearly know a lot about. I, I, I'm not going to speak for Charles because I'm sure he'll say something too, but I'm truly honored that you would take some time to come hang out with us and, and have this conversation. Not only did I learn a ton, but uh, I, I just feel like we, we got a new friend and a possible drinking partner in New York come October. So, uh, get it. Charles, it. yeah. Yep. You did speak for me. All right. We'll find them. <laughs> all. all right. Well, let's After get you to all. the, uh, let's get, let's get you to the, the cozy, comfy arms of United Airlines. Yeah, let's get you in a car. Let's get the tab. Eh? Yeah. Let's pay the tab. All right. Thank you so much. And, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks guys. Thanks guys.